This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, here we are. We're ready to begin on our Alaskan adventure. And everybody wants to know, what are we doing here? Which tzaddikim are buried here? Which kvarim are we visiting? This trip is not about visiting Kibbeit tzaddikim. First and foremost, you're going to see there are many halachos that are relevant and will come up and will become alive to you just being here in Alaska. The first is a very interesting issue regarding the International Dateline. Say, what does International Dateline have to do with Alaska? International Dateline is an issue for Japan or Hawaii. So let's just sum up the famous Machlekes Chazaynish, Rabbi Chil Mechel Tekachinsky. According to Chazaynish, International Dateline is exactly 90 degrees east of Yerushalayim at 125.2 east longitude. That cuts through Russia, Philippines, Indonesia, and Australia. And according to the Chazoinish, it does not have any bearing on Alaska. Alaska is completely east of the International Dateline. The Chazoinish interestingly holds that even though the line dissects Australia, he has a chidosh that the east part of Australia gets schlepped to the west through a process called Guerrera, that the land mass on the east is schlepped to the West. However, let's say New Zealand or Japan or Hawaii is going to be, according to the Chazoinish, on the east side of the line. Rabbi Chil Michal Tukachinsky interestingly holds that the international date line cuts through Alaska at exactly opposite the line that cuts through Yerushalayim. It's exactly opposite the, the line of Yerushalayim. And in that case, it does cut through Alaska. So Juno would be on the east side. And the rest of the continent of Alaska, the rest of the of the state would be on the west side. That means when you hit the line, Sunday becomes Monday, Friday becomes Shabbos. You see, the Aleutian Islands are definitely on the west side of the line. You definitely hit the date line before you get to Aleutian Islands. The line that cuts to Alaska. So you say, well, why don't we use the same lambdas lambdas of Guerrera as a Chazaynish, namely, why don't we schlep? the rest of Alaska to the east side, to the mainland of Canada and the, and the United States. Rabbi Chil Michal Tukachinsky is Masupik, whether in his dateline you say Greira. The bottom line is, and I want to thank my dear friend Rabbi David Haber of the Star K, who shared with me the map that he made, and he explained to me a lot of these halachas. Rabbi Chil Michal is Masupik about whether you say Greira on the mainland of, mainland of Alaska. So the first relevant halacha that I want to share with the Olam is that according to Rabbi Chil Mechotikachinsky, where the line cuts to Alaska, and we're flying out on Sunday, but as soon as you hit that line, it becomes Monday. So wait a second. I daven chakras on Sunday. I didn't daven chakras on Monday. I didn't daven on Monday yet. So regarding tefillah, we're not going to be so machmer within the shita of Rabbi Chil Mechel, because first of all, according to the Chazaynish, it's definitely Sunday. And even according to Rabbi Chil Mechel Tikachinsky, it could be, you say, Greira, and it's still Sunday. And Tefillah is basically a Durabanan. And even according to the Ramam as Daraisa, we're going to be davening a Tefillah, we're going to be davening Mincha here. So you're still Yoytze Tefillah. But the Shaila now is, what about Tefillin? Tefillin is a Daraisa. Should one be machmir and put on tefillin again when we land? So we flew out on Sunday. We arrived here 
Sunday evening in Alaska is considered Sunday evening, but halachically, according to Rebichil, Mechol might be Monday. So yes, indeed, it would be worthwhile. It would be l'chatchila. It would be a davar hagon to indeed put on tefillin again in deference to the view of Rebichil, Mechol, Tikachinsky that you hit the dateline going from uh, New York to Anchorage, and, the, and this day, Monday, you didn't yet put on tefillin. So indeed, it would be a proper thing to put on tefillin. So people want to know, well, how can you make a bracha? It's still a suffix bracha. No, it's not a suffix bracha. Any day you choose to put on tefillin a second time, you would make another bracha later on in the day. So this is uh, for sure one, uh, it would be proper to put on tefillin again, and indeed make another bracha. So that's the first interesting halacha that arises coming here to Alaska. Okay, good morning, everyone. So an uh, interesting shayla is, does one make Berches HaGoymel fly, uh, when one flies from New York to Alaska? The question is, is this considered traveling B'makam Sakana? We know the Gemara says that if somebody crosses a Yam or someone crosses a Midbar, however, by Yam or by Midbar, so they're Mavarech Berches HaGoymel. Question is whether air travel today warrants Berches HaGoymel. Is, is it considered a Makam Sakana? L'chaira, air travel today is not a Makam Sakana. Millions of people are constantly traveling. Yes, certainly it's a makam sakana for your luggage, but Baruch Hashem for people, it's not a makam sakana. So does one make berchas ha'goymah? The consensus of most paiskin is that indeed, even bismanazah, you make berchas ha'goymah when uh, during air travel. Uh, and not only that, we have edos that many G'doyle Yisrael themselves did make berchas ha'goymah. Rav Sternbach brings down from Chazaynish, look in Shuvah Tzitzel Yezer, Samar Rebbe uh, paskin this way, Rav Shalom Arbach, and Rav Moshe, Rav Chaim Noah, go even so far as to say that even if you're not crossing over a Yam or a Midbar, the fact that you're in a Makoim, that it's impossible to exist, without a Tachbula, that itself warrants Rav even if you're not traveling over a Yam or a Midbar. But Ad Kach, the Minog is not to make Rav unless you go over a Yam or a Midbar, where even though L'chur, it's not a Makoim Sakana, but still, if something were to happen in that makayim, it would it is bebechinas. A person could be nevad instantaneously. So the minog is to make berachas hagoyimal. This is a uh, avir tour, so we have to mention that the Belzareva, Rav Aaron uh, uh, Bells, uh, did not make berachas hagoyimal. Did not hold to make berachas hagoyimal for air travel. I believe the Briskarav as well. But the consensus of most places, if you're passing over a yam or a midbar, you do make berachas hagoyimal. By the way, Rebavadya, brings a proof that l'chayra, you automatically make Berchus HaGama, irrespective of where you travel, based on the Shailah and the Chida. The Chida and the Machsa wants to know, did the Dalid HaNichnas Lepardes, did they have to make Berchus HaGama? Which indicates, says Rebavadya, that they said a Shem HaMafurash, they flew in the air, that seems to indicate, Tisa Ba'avir automatically warrants uh, so it could be we're also we're we're traveling with avir. Then uh, we would also have to make berchas But again, the consensus of most paiskim is if you're traveling over a yam, you're traveling over a midbar, you make berchas But I mapped out the travel route from New York to Alaska. You're not traveling over any ocean, sea, or midbar really, and certainly not for an extended period of time. And therefore, according to most paiskim, one would not make berchas traveling to Alaska. Wishing everyone a wonderful day. Good morning, everyone. You know, before you start learning in the morning, one has to say a few good jokes. You know, Rabbah was always Machbed 
before he would learn, he'd also, he would always say Milsa de Bichusa. We'll talk about why Rabbi would always say Milsa de Bichusa. You might be wondering, why are there so many rabbis on this trip? You know, we've been on many Avira tours, and maybe we have uh, one extra rabbi. This trip, we have we have a surplus. We have a lot of very chashver rabbanim. Now, there's a very important reason why we have a lot of rabbis on this trip. You know, many rabbanim, they have a need to connect with their kahilas. So, sometimes they like to go hunting with their members of the kahilas. It's well known. It's an old minog. It's an old messairah. The Rabbanim like to go hunting with the members of the Kila. One time, a rabbi and his member, they went hunting, and they saw a deer, not a moose. I don't believe in moose. There's no such thing as moose. They're dinosaurs, they're unicorns, and they're moose. Don't let them, they're going to stay up there. They, even he, he never even saw a moose. He's been here for 30 years. So they, uh, they wanted to see who's going to shoot the deer, and they both shoot the deer, and there's a big machlekes now. Who shot the deer? The rabbi or the president? And the rabbi brought a proof. It was he who shot the deer. The president said, how do you know? The rabbi said, because I shot, it went in one ear and right out the other. <laughs> and that was better than the joke that uh, the bartender had, which was, what do you call a mother moose who just gave birth? Decaffeinated. Okay. I told you mine was better. Okay. okay. So the question is, why would Rabbo always start off with a joke? We don't find that. Baye would start off with a joke. When Papa would start off, why Dafka Rabba? I believe that Rabbo lived a very difficult life. The Gemara tells us in Marikatan that Reb Chizda lived 92 years. Rabbo only lived 40 years. Reb Chizda made many chasanas. Rabbo ate at 60 sudois of Avelos. And the Rishonim say Davka. Usually the number 60 is Lav Davka. 60 Davka. Rabbah was very poor. He couldn't even afford barley. And to top it off, the Gemara says, Kagoin Rabbah, the Sony Lake Kula, Masa the Pumpadisa. So Rabbah didn't have money. Rabbah didn't have Simcha. Rabbah didn't have popularity. So in order to put himself in the proper spirit, Rabbah would always start off this year with Milsa the Bichusa. You know, it's an interesting Machleka Sachroinim. What exactly were these Milsa the Bichusa? Rabba would start off with a knock-knock joke. Rabba would come to the shir. Knock-knock. Who's there? Rabba. So the Achroinim say, Chas V'Sholem, that Rabba would make uh, silly jokes. Pnei Yeshua says either he would teach Milsa the Agadita or he would say Torah L'Chidu Alma. But many Achroinim say, no, he Ramosha writes in the Dibrei's Moshe, from here we see, that it's permitted to talk about even Dibrei Rishus in order to be Paiseach the Leib v'Dibrei Chachman. But did you know that in the first Pasuk in this week's Parsha, there's a remez, you should start off a share with a joke. V'haya, ein v'haya ela l'ashayim simcha. V'haya, says the holy Ben Lashri, you know who the Ben Lashri is? Ben Lashri is one of the great Makubah of the last century. By the way, he was close with the uh, Rav of Bulgarai. Anybody who says over Dvaratar in the name of the Ben Lashri never had children, he personally promises you he will daven for you and bail you out of any tsara and oil mazah, oil He So you, maybe you could say over this one because it's a shtickle joke. V'haya! Ein v'haya l'lashem simcha! Eikev! Rashi Tevois! Koidem! Eisek! Batoira! Tishmon, 
you'll be able to understand the Torah. So before you learn, you always have to make a good joke. That's why I didn't go with the joke about the decaffeinated. I went with the one about the rabbi hunting. And this way it will be Paiseach Libeinu, the Divrei Torah. But you know that not only should you start off a shir with the joke, you're supposed to end the shir with the joke. Says the Tzlam Kluger, Smeichem B'tseisam, V'sasam B'voyam. Not only do you start off Sasam B'voyam, but also Smeichem B'tseisam. So, Bezos Hashem, we're starting off the Divrei Simcha, and Me'achash Baruch Hu B'mavarechas, that the whole trip we should be zoicha, v'haya, ekev tishman, koydem esek v'atayra, should be the simcha, and all the rabbanim should be able to get good material, and uh, show that they're taka very good hunters, and uh, and I will vouch for you that if you shoot any moose, that you are the one who was, uh, okay, go, we'll, uh, to be continued. Okay, uh, we're... We have in our back, in the background the Chugaj mountain range, and the Navi Yeshaya gives us a very important directive. The Navi Yeshaya says, "Su'u maroim einechem uru mi vara ela." Raise up your eyes on high and see who created these. You see, creation, the going teaches, has two elements. There's ela. Ela is matter. Ela are mountains. Ela are trees. Ela is the sky. Ela is the physical world. The concretized physical world. world. The facts in front of you. Ela. Ela. But there's another dimension to creation, and that dimension is me. Me is the secret of creation. Me is the question. So who's responsible for it? Who created all of this matter? What is the secret of the universe? Me. Me. That's the question we all have to ask. You have to put together the Ela with the Me. When you put together the Ela with the Me, I like him. That's Sakalich Barfu. The objective of living in this world is to combine the Ela with the Me. Everyone sees the Ela. Every All of mankind sees the Ela. Everyone has the question, Me. The objective of life is to combine the me with the Ela and to see the Rebunish Lailam. In fact, the Abudraham writes, Shema Yisrael, Shema is Rashi Tevois, Su'u Maraim Einechem, Ru'u Mibara But the B'nai Esav cannot put together the Ela with the me. So Esav sees Yaakov Avinu, he says, Mi Ela you have a beautiful family. I see the Ela. I have a question, me. But Esav cannot put two and two together. Esav could have all of the brachas of this world. He sees the Ela. He has the question, me. But he's never able to be mitzareth. The Ela and the me. That was the Ched Ho'egel, says the Goyen. Ela Eloihecha Yisrael. You see Eloihecha. But you take the Ela out of it. And you remove the me. So the objective of this world is to look at the harem, the gvois, the shamayim, the ares, the trees. Not that, of course, I left out the moose, because there are no moose. But to see all of creation, and to recognize the elat, and to see the me, and to be able to put two and two together, and to recognize HaKadosh Baruch I believe that is the reason why 
What? Yeah, they're gonna point out. You missed it. You missed it. Yeah, you just missed it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was back. You didn't see it. So they're gonna try very hard. I know. That's the objective of living in this world. There are two ways of seeing HaKadosh Baruch in this world. Of course, we know How do you see, how do you come to be Ahavta Sashem Alekecha by Limad HaTorah? Limad HaTorah is the greatest way to see HaKadosh Baruch But there's also a way of seeing HaKadosh Baruch through creation. And that's one of the main objectives of uh, our, our trip. Be able to ask me to see the Ela and to come to the conclusion. How's everybody doing? Okay, nothing in this universe is as concealed as the Creator. Even the greatest men of all time have not seen the Creator. And at the same time, nothing in this world is as evident as the Creator. Now we're going to talk a little bit about leaves. Okay, there are a lot of leaves. The moose, there were dozens of moose. When you fell asleep, uh, you missed it. You, uh, you know, try to try to be very vigilant because, you know, you blink and uh, you miss them. Now the Gemara tells us in the Sefta Shabbos, Adam Kufiyot Tesamabeza, that Friday night, when you say, Vaychulu HaShamayim Va'aretz V'chotzva'am, Two Malachi Asharis come, two heavenly angels come, and they put their hands on your forehead, and they say, Vesar, Avaynecha, Vechaytasta, Tukubar. All your sins are forgiven. So Friday night when you say, Vayichulu, you have Kaparas Avaynois. Now today is the uh, the Levaya of the son of Harav Avigdir Miller, Zetatak Lebracha. So I want to share with you some thoughts from Rav Miller. Rav Miller asked on the Gemara, why, when you say Vayichulu Friday night, are all your sins atoned for? What exactly are you accomplishing by saying Vayichulu? That Kalash Baruch Hu created the world? We all know that. We all believe that. What exactly is achieved by saying Vayichulu? Says Rav Miller, from here we see that even something that we already know, but a little bit of a more deeper awareness of the Creator is such a powerful moment. It's on par with Yom Kippur. Here you have to fast 24 hours to get atonement. And merely by reciting that Hashem created the world and rested on the seventh day, that alone is enough to gain atonement on par with Yom Kippur. But says Rav Miller, if it, it can't be greater than Yom Kippur. And just like Yom, Yom Kippur is only Mechaper with Tshuva, the power of Ayichulu is only with Tshuva. So it's appropriate Friday night when you say Ayichulu, before you say Ayichulu, one should be Mahar B'Tshuva, and then it's Mechaper, all of one's Avoynois, Provided that it brings a person a deepened awareness of Hashem. So now, again, even though we haven't seen too many chayos, uh, but you know what they have a lot of in Alaska? Leaves. Did you notice that? There are a lot of leaves in Alaska. So I want to speak about eight miracles of leaves. Number one, did you notice? Every leaf is horizontal, not vertical. Now that's very difficult, because try holding a leaf, keeping it horizontal, it's, it's nearly impossible. And yet the tree is able to hold on to thousands of leaves, each one in a horizontal position. Why? Why horizontal? 
in order for each leaf to receive maximum sunlight. It's able somehow, you can't hold on to the leaf horizontal, the tree can hold on to thousands of leaves horizontally in order for them to achieve maximum sunlight. Number two, the glossy, deep green side of the leaf is always on the top because the glossy side is exposed to the sun and it's able to utilize the direct rays of the sun to uh, for chlorophyll. So that's another miracle of the leaves. Number three, now this is uh, the summer months. Summer months, the trees are full of leaves. Why? Maximum shade. It's very sunny, protects uh, uh, people, animals from the sun. In the winter, we want to maximize as much sunlight as we could get so the trees, they know it's, uh, it's cold outside. Let's drop the leaves in order that people could uh, experience as much sunlight as possible. Now, every leaf has jagged edges. Why does it have jagged edges? In order to give greater circumference, like a shoreline, because the circumference is what facilitates inhaling of carbon dioxide. So the jagged edges of the leaf really multiplies its ability to uh, take in the carbon dioxide. Every leaf is crisscrossed with veins. What are the veins for? It's like a network of veins. It transports water, materials throughout the leaf, and at the same time, it's a supporting frame. The leaf is a very lightweight fabric. Now, the leaves are paper thin. Actually, if you spread out all the leaves of one tree, it could cover acres of uh, area. In order to, uh, it's the creator uses as little material as possible to create as much surface as possible. And then the leaf is coated with transparent plastic, something like that, which allows the sun to pass through it. And at the same time, it gives it a certain strength so that chewing insects do not uh, chew it. So as we mentioned, if, you, if one were to ask, where is Hashem? Every leaf speaks out. Where is he not? So Alaska has a lot of leaves. And we're going to have plenty of time to count each and every one of them. Okay? You know, Rabbi Shulay Diskin, he could look at a tree and he could tell you exactly how many leaves are on the tree. But each one calls out, Ma Rabu Masafa Hashem. How's everybody doing? Okay. Nothing in this universe is as concealed as the Creator. Even the greatest men of all time have not seen the Creator. And at the same time, nothing in this world is as evident as the Creator. Now we're going to talk a little bit about leaves. Okay, there are a lot of leaves. The moose, there were dozens of moose. When you fell asleep, you missed it. You, you know... Try to try to be very vigilant because you know you blink and uh, you miss them. Now the Gemara tells us in the Sefer Shabbos, Adam that Friday night when you say Vaychulu Hashamayim Vaaretz Vacholtzvam, two Malachi Asharis come, two heavenly angels come, and they put their hands on your forehead and they say the Sar Avaynecha all your sins are forgiven. So Friday night when you say Vayichulu, you have Kaparas Avoynois. Now today, 
is the uh, the Levaya of the son of Harab Avigdor Miller Zechazak Lebracha. So I want to share with you some thoughts from Rav Miller. Rav Miller asked on the Gemara, why when you say by Yechulu Friday night are all your sins atoned for? What exactly are you accomplishing by saying by Yechulu? That Kosh created the world? We all know that. We all believe that. What exactly is achieved by saying by Yechulu? Says Rav Miller, from here we see that even something that we already know but a little bit of a more deeper awareness of the Creator is such a powerful moment. It's on par with Yom Kippur. Here you have to fast 24 hours to get atonement, and merely by reciting that Hashem created the world and rested on the seventh day, that alone is enough to gain atonement on par with Yom Kippur. But says Rav Miller, if it, it can't be greater than Yom Kippur. And just like Yom, Yom Kippur is only Mechaper with Tshuva, the power of Ayichulu is only with Tshuva. So it's appropriate. Friday night when you say Ayichulu, before you say Ayichulu, one should be Mahar Betshuva, and then it's Mechaper, all of one's Avoynois, provided that it brings a person a deepened awareness of Hashem. So now, again, even though we haven't seen too many Chayois, uh, but you know what they have a lot of in Alaska? Leaves. Did you notice that? There are a lot of leaves in Alaska. So I want to speak about eight miracles of leaves. Number one, did you notice? Every leaf is horizontal, not vertical. Now that's very difficult, because try holding a leaf, keeping it horizontal. It's, it's nearly impossible. And yet the tree is able to hold on to thousands of leaves, each one in a horizontal position. Why? Why horizontal? in order for each leaf to receive maximum sunlight. It's able, somehow, you can't hold on to the leaf horizontal, the tree can hold on to thousands of leaves horizontally in order for them to achieve maximum sunlight. Number two, the glossy, deep green side of the leaf is always on the top because the glossy side is exposed to the sun and it's able to utilize the direct rays of the sun to, uh, for chlorophyll. So that's another miracle of the leaves. Number three, now this is uh, the summer months. Summer months, the trees are full of leaves. Why? Maximum shade. It's very sunny, protects uh, uh, people, animals from the sun. In the winter, we want to maximize as much sunlight as we could get. So the trees, they know it's, uh, it's cold outside. Let's drop the leaves in order that people could uh, experience as much sunlight as possible. Now, every leaf has jagged edges. Why does it have jagged edges? In order to give greater circumference, like a shoreline, because the circumference is what facilitates inhaling of carbon dioxide. So the jagged edges of the leaf really multiplies its ability to uh, take in the carbon dioxide. Every leaf is crisscrossed with veins. What are the veins for? It's like a network of veins. It transports water, materials throughout the leaf, and at the same time, it's a supporting frame. The leaf is a very lightweight fabric. Now, the leaves are paper thin. Actually, if you spread out all the leaves of one tree, it could cover acres of uh, area in order to, uh, it's the creator uses as little material as possible to create as much surface as possible. 
And then the leaf is coated with transparent plastic, something like that, which allows the sun to pass through it. And at the same time, it gives it a certain strength so that chewing insects do not uh, chew it. So as we mentioned, if, you, if one were to ask, where is Hashem? Every leaf speaks out. Where is He not? So Alaska has a lot of leaves. And we're going to have plenty of time to count each and every one of them. Okay? You know, Rabbi Shulay Diskin, he could look at a tree and he could tell you exactly how many leaves are on the tree. But each one calls out, Ma Rabu Masafa Hashem. Okay. <clears throat> Good afternoon, everyone. Parshas Ekev. In Parshas Ekev, we have a very important pasuk. For on bread alone man does not live. This is a very important question. Even when one eats, one is not sustained by just the physical nutrition of the food. There's a certain spiritual quality of food that nourishes the neshama as well. So the park, the pasuk says, Eretz chita. So it's a very interesting Gemara in Sukkah, Dafheya Mebez, in Brachais, in Amalef, in Erevin, Dafdalid. The Gemara says, Shiurin da'iraisa nenu. All the Shiurin are biblical, they're da'iraisa. All the Shivas Haminim are for specific Shiurin. Chita. What's a Chita for? If somebody goes into a, a bias hamanuga, a house that has taras on it, how much time would one have to spend in the house to contract tumah? Kedei achilas pras. That's what chita is for. Sa'ira, what's the barley corn for? Etsem kesa'ira, to be matame. Etsem kesa'ira matame b'mago u'bamasa. Gefen, what's the gefen for? What's the size of the grape for? Size of the grape, the Gemara says, Kedei reviyas yayin l'nazer. Te'ina. For Haitzah and Shabbos. Shabbos, one is only Chai for Haitzah. Kegroigeris. Remind. For Kalim, if Kalim have a hole in it. Eretz Shemen Udvash. The Gemara Darshan. Darshan. Eretz Shekoshira Kezesim. No, most of the Shiurim are Kezayas. And then finally, the Gemara says, Dvash Achila Ayam Akipurim is Kekoshavas. Says the It's not a coincidence that every important fruit is for a shear. Says the Shlach, it's a reminder that at the time of Achila, one should think about what they're eating and realize that aside from the physical value of the food, every food has a spiritual quality in it. And the spiritual quality of the food nourishes the neshama. And furthermore, says the Shlach, when you're eating, you're reminded that the food reminds you of a certain halakha, which to me, I think this is very important to review. From, from this Gemara, we see a very important insight that everything in the physical world reminds us of a specific halakha. When you look at a grape, it's not a grape, it's something to help you remember sheer revius. It's not a zayas. It's something to help you rem- remember the shirm of kizayasim. Everything in the physical world is a concretization of Torah. It's a certain way to look at the world. When you look at a tree, what's a tree? 
a tree is a davar that is subject to Hilchais Arla, Hilchais Revai, meaning the world is a world of Taira. Everything that exists in the world is to remind you of certain halachas. The Shlach gives further examples, even the fingers of the hand. The Gemara Suba says, the Zeres, the pinky is to measure the Zeres of the Chayshen. The next finger, the Kamitsa, is when the Kayin takes the Kamitsa, the bottom finger of the Kamitsa, is the Kamitsa. The Amma, the middle finger, is to measure Amos Habinian, Amos Hamishkan. The Etzba is to measure Etzbois. The Goido is for the Matnas Mohenois, and so on and so forth. In other words, the world, everything in this world, is comes to reality through Halachas of the Torah. With this, says the Shlach Kaddish, we can answer a very important question. The Kliyakar brings the Parshas Mokhukhaisai. This is a very fundamental question. The whole Tachlis Habriah is for Olam Haba, and yet nowhere in the Torah does it talk about Olam Haba. Olam Haba is omitted from the Chumash. The Kliyakar Mokhukhaisai gives ten answers to this question. But says the Shlach Kaddish, no, it's a mistake to think the Torah doesn't talk about Olam Haba. The rain, the rain, what's rain? We think the rain are physical droplets that come down in Hashemayi. No, that's the way the rain appears to us. But the Yisai, the Iker, what's rain? There's a Shoresh of Geshem in the Oilam HaRuchni, which is reserved as the Schar in Oilam Haba. And in the Oilam HaRuchni, there's something called Geshem, there's something called Geshamim. And we don't understand what it is. We don't know what it is. That's the Olam Haba. But the Torah talks about it. The Torah talks about the Nasati Gishmei The way we relate to it is the way we see the rain, the physical rain, come down in Hashemayim. But that's not the rain B'Shairesh. The rain B'Shairesh is in the Olam HaSolyonim. It's in Olam Haba. So says the Shla. In fact, the Torah discusses the Yehudim of Olam Haba. But... The way we relate to it is in the physical world. But even in the physical world, the physical world is merely a concretization of the Olam Haruchani. So everything that we see, all the trees that we see, all the rivers that we see, the atmosphere that we see, is the physical concretization of Olam Haruchanim. Now, moose, there are no moose as we know. And so there are no spiritual moves either. Okay, good afternoon everyone. Now is your daily dose of halacha. So coming to Alaska, it gives us opportunity to review some halachas that uh, perhaps we don't have a chance to focus on during the rest of the year. Now I would like to talk about Zman Tfilas Mincha. We're headed toward Mincha. And I want to talk about uh, the proper Zman for Mincha and Marav. We all know that there's Machloikes, the Chachomim, and Rabbi Yehuda, what the Zman Mincha Marav is. The Chachomim hold that Zman Mincha is until the Laila, until the night, until the stars come out, until Shkia, which means Zman Mincha is until then. You could have a Mincha until the Laila, and you'd have a Marav after that. Rabbi Yehuda has a Chiddush. Rabbi Yehuda says Zman Mincha is until Plaga Mincha, an hour and a quarter before the night. And once a plaga mincha comes, you can already daven marav. That's the famous machlokes in the Sechta Brachos 
And what's the maskana? Who do we hold like? Do we hold like the Chachamim? That you could have in Mincha until the nighttime and Marav after? Or do we hold like Rabbi Yehuda that Mincha is until Plaga Mincha? And Marav could then be after Plaga Mincha. Now, davening Marav after Plaga Mincha would allow for uh, a nice leniency on a day like today when we have uh, we have to wake up very early tomorrow and to wait until Tzeis HaKechavim. By the way, tonight Tzeis HaKechavim is at 12.30 p.m. So to have to daven Marav after 12.30 or even to wait till Shkia is very late. So who do we hold like? Do we hold like the Rabbanon? Do we hold like Rabbi Yudah? So the conclusion is, the conclusion of the Gemara is the Avid Kemar Avid with the Avid Kemar Avid. You could follow either opinion. Pick them. Choose. Choose your opinion. You want to go like the Chachamim? You want daven Mincha until the night? Because not to hey, daven Marav after? No problem. You want to follow Rabbi Huda? Also not a problem. Davin Mincha Toplag, Davin Marav after. However, the Shulchan Aruch says, You have to be consistent. Consistent means the same thing every day. Which means, if you Davin Mincha sometime until the night, let's say until Shkia, then on a different day when it works out for you, you cannot Davin Marav after Plaga Mincha. Because since sometimes you render after Plaga Mincha day, you can't turn around on a different time and daven marav them. That's why the halacha is, the baseline halacha is, you know, sometimes people, Sunday night, they want to call it uh, early night, so they want to daven marav after Plaga Mincha. It's not correct. You can't do that. The question is, what about Bishas Hadchak? Bishas Hadchak, you have a difficult circumstance. Let's say, we have to be up uh, very early tomorrow. Let's say we have to be up 4 a.m. And uh, I assume, presumably, most people will da- will take Mincha up to the Laila. They'll daven Mincha before the Shkia. Obviously, with all present company, uh, without... Uh, uh, this, this uh, the following message does not necessarily represent the view of all the Rabbanani, but it represents my view that you have to complete the Mincha before the Shkia. That's what the Mishnah Baruch says. You have to complete the Mincha before the Shkia. So let's say people usually daven Mincha before the Shkia. On a different day, you can't turn around and then daven uh, Marev after Plaga Mincha. So uh, could we do that today? It would seem like it is still reasonable for us to do that, even though it would not be consistent with our usual uh, practice. Because the Mechaber says, B'Sha'as Hadchak, a person could daven Marev from Plaga Mincha and on. Now the Mishnah Brew explains, provided that it's not what we call Tarati Dastasmi, which means if you're going to daven Mincha on that day after Plaga Mincha, then even Bishas Hadchak, you should not daven Marev before the Laila. So Bishas Hadchak, in a difficult circumstance, you could, let's say, turn around one, uh, on, on a day that's extremely difficult and go like Rabbi Huda provided that you don't contradict yourself and do a tarti desasri. Friday night may be different. You'll ask your uh, local Orthodox Paisek, maybe once your Mikado Shabbos, so your Mashve Laila. But uh, that's that's what our uh, Avir Tfilah routine is going to be uh, utilizing what the Shulchan Aruch says, that the Shaz Hadchak, you could have in Marav after Plaga Mincha, provided that it's not tarti desasri. Now, an interesting question is, what if, if you don't do a Tarti Dastasri 
you're not going to have a minion. The minion will be lost. This is a very interesting question. The Mishabruin Simon Reish Lamed Gimel seems to say that if you daven mincha one day after Plaga Mincha and you don't turn around and daven Marav immediately, there might be basis to be able to keep the minion. However, the Mishnah elsewhere, and Simon Reish Samad Zayn Sechadam Beis, and the Biralacha says that um, one should not be makal even if you're going to lose the minion. So uh, the bottom line is, under normal, regular circumstances, it's always best to be uh, consistent uh, on a daily basis. In other words, now if a person wanted, they could daven Marav every single night after Plaga Mincha and daven Mincha before. But the usual practice is most people, they take Mincha up to the Shia and uh, davening Marav after Plaga Mincha would not be viable unless it's what we call Shas Hadchan. Okay, that's your first uh, halacha dose before supper. One more very important halacha, because we said under the circumstances, you could daven Marav after the Plaga Mincha. The only thing is, that's very important to keep in mind, is that you still need to say Krishna after Tzitzek HaKavim. So tonight, Krishna, uh, Tzitzek HaKavim is approximately 12.30, which means you're going to go to sleep, you're going to get back to the hotel very nice and early, you're going to have a, a good night's sleep. The only thing is you're going to set your alarm for between Tzitzek HaKavim and Chatzos. Chatzos is about 2 a.m. So you're going to wake up in the middle of the night, you say, I don't understand, I came on vacation, and they're mutching me, I have to get up at 12.30 a.m. to say Krishna. This is the most important moment of your life. The Gemara says in Shabbos, Lecharva Yerushalayim, Elam Bitol, Krishna, Shoshachas V'Arvis. Which means that saying Shema is a skula for Binyan Beis HaMikdash. Let's explain that. Why is saying Krishna skula for Binyan Beis HaMikdash? You know, the Chidah brings down that if somebody is Mrs. Man Krishna, they're in Cherem, Menashamayim, the whole day. Why? So, Kedah explains there are 248 words in Shema, Ramach. If you don't say the Ramach, they flip it around, Cherem. I think we can explain as follows. How many kinnis are there on Tishma? Total kinnis. How many kinnis? 45. The Gematria Adam. Which means, yes, the base was destroyed, but the Iker Mikdash is the person. It means the base is destroyed. The Adam themselves is in a state of... Uh, the Adam is Nechrav. <coughs> Mamela, how is a person Boina himself? You say the Krishna, you're Boina the Ramachi Varim, you're Boina the Adam, Mamela, the base of Mikdash comes, the Iker Mikdash is the Adam. So tonight, you're very tired, but you're gonna set an alarm, Mamish the Simcha at Suma, that at 12.30 a.m., you're gonna jump up, you're gonna wash your hands, you're gonna say the Krishna, you're gonna be Mashlim Ramachi Varim, you're going to build a base on Mikdash. You say, but then we're going to lose out the next few days of being in Alaska. You never lose out by doing the right thing. Even though Mashiach will come, <coughs> you won't lose out on your vacation days. We'll make it, or Avi will arrange, but even though Mashiach will come, somehow you'll get in the beers. Then when Mashiach comes, maybe Taka, there will be moose. <laughs> but until then, you know, there are no promises. Okay. Okay, so I just want to add uh, one prat to the Krishma because you're thinking, here I came to Alaska and have to wake up in the middle of the night. You got off a lot easy. We, we took you to Alaska at the most convenient possible time because if you would have come, say, June 21st, I want to tell you something. June 21st, Seisak is about 2 a.m. 
and Chatzois is 2 a.m. Which means you would have to say Krishna three times. Say, how's that? Three times? Krishna three times? See, now it's only twice. You're saying it by Marev after Plaga Mencha, and you're saying it after Tzitzit But if you would have come earlier in the summer, when there's almost no difference between Tzitzit and Chatzois, and by the way, and Alois HaShachar, because 2 a.m. is also Alois HaShachar, it would come out that you probably should say Kriya three times. Once in Marav, after Plaga Mencha. One, you're going to have to wait until the darkest part of the night. Darkest part of the night will be moments before 2 a.m. So you're going to say your Krishna say, 1.55 a.m. In order to be Yotzi Krishna, but say Sekechavim, the thing is, you can never really be certain that you said Krishna by Sekechavim. You may have said it a bit too early, and now that Chatzois has come, and Alois HaShachar has come, maybe you missed this man Krishma. Now, the halacha is that normally you don't say Shema after Alois HaShachar, but if somebody has an Oynas, you're allowed to say Krishma after Alois before Nates. So there's no greater Oynas than being in Alaska June 21st when you cannot really determine what Tzitzakachavim is. So uh, Rabbi Moshe Haber of the Star K, he suggests that when you come to Alaska in the, be- in the beginning of the summer, you're going to say Krishna three times every night, which uh, actually, you can make a strong case for that. So that's why we delayed our Alaskan trip to a time of the summer when you've got a good hour and a half between Tzitzakachavim and Chatzois. And this gives you a perfect window. You only have to get up one time in the middle of the night. Most people get up ten times in the middle of the night anyway. So this way, one on one of your nightly uh, awakenings, you wash your hands, you say Shema, and there's a very well-known skula that you fall asleep very quickly after you say the Krishna, and uh, you'll sleep very well. Good morning, everyone. I just want to share with you a brief thought from the Ramchal and the Sefer about various animals. It really, it doesn't matter whether they exist or not, by the way. It's irrelevant whether they actually exist. But we know that in, in the world that HaKadosh created, there are millions of species of animals, of fish, of birds. The question is why HaKadosh Baruch Hu created such a varied universe. Why did the Almighty create so many species? Many of them we will see. Most species we will never even encounter in our lifetime. What's the purpose? What is HaKadosh Baruch Hu demonstrating with this very vast and uh, varied creation? The Ramchal and the Das Tzvunais offers really a magnificent idea. He says that everything in this world is a reflection of the Creator. We know that man is created in the image of Hashem. So a person is selim uh, like him. But even... Even without that, every single creation and creature reflects a, a Hanhaga of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So we know HaKadosh Baruch Hu is one, and he has no components, Chas But nevertheless, the way the Rebbe manifests to us at different times, the Rebbe has different uh, manifestations and different Hanhagas. There's Midas Hadin, there's Midas Harachamim, there's Teferes. There are infinite combinations of the various Midas. Each animal, plant, fish, bird, reflects a hanhaga of the Creator. So, 
we're not just looking at something Akalash Rochel created, but you're looking at something that reflects an element of the divine, an element of Akalash Rochel. So that's the objective, that's the purpose of of the vast uh, Bria. Well, maybe we'll speak more about, you know, uh, animals play a very uh, large role in the Torah. Aside from, you know, in, in many places there are uh, main characters in the story. So in the beginning of Bereshus, you know, you have Adam and Chava, but you have the Nachash. And then Nayach, the animals uh, also play a, a big role. Um, but besides that, Chazal finds Chazal teach us that there are certain things that we learn from the animals. We, we learn from the animals. We're going to discuss soon uh, how one could learn from animals. You know, people have Rabbeim and Yeshivas. Most people, if you ask them, know, who do you learn by? I, I learned by the, by the ant for a few years, you know. Most, so the question is, how exactly is a human being supposed to learn from an, from an animal? And... Uh, what type of realistic expectation is there that we observe animals and uh, elevate ourselves from uh, from learning from them? Okay. So many animals today. Baruch Hashem, we saw caribou. We saw arctic squirrels. We saw doll sheep. And we even saw paintings of moose. So Baruch Hashem, it was a very successful day. Um, let's talk a little bit about the creation and the animal world and the entire universe. Perkyavis teaches us, Yehuda ben Teim Ahimer, Haviaz Kanomer, be bold like a leopard, Bekal Kanesher, light like an eagle, Rutz Katsvi, run like a deer, Vigibar Kari. So imagine you have a kid, you're trying to get him up. No, it's so hard. I'm so tired. I'm so heavy. You say, Pal, be light like an eagle. I mean, that, that's the most ridiculous thing you could possibly tell somebody. Be light like an eagle? I'm a human being. I'm not an eagle. I can't fly. What exactly is the Mishnah telling us? We should be strong like a lion? A lion is programmed to be strong. A lion has the brute strength. A lion has the physical ability. A human being is meek, meager compared to the lion. What exactly is Pirkei telling us? To emulate these animals that are programmed, that are created with unusual ability that a human being does not have? I mean, you can't fly. Imagine you told somebody, what's taking so long? Get here like a supersonic jet. Fly like a jet. I'm not a jet. I don't have I don't have fuel. I don't have wingspan. I don't have an engine. I don't have that power. You know, if you told somebody, you know, you should really try to learn like the Vilna Gain. I mean, that, is, that a, is that a meaningful message? What exactly is Perkei Avais? teaching us. You know, we have a similar idea coming up, the end of Devarim, where Moshe Rabbeinu tells Klan Yisrael, I call to witness, to testimony today, heaven and earth. Says Rashi, HaKadosh Baruch tells Klan Yisrael, look at the heaven that I created. Did the heaven ever say, I'm going on strike? Did the sun ever say, I'm not going to shine? Did the moon ever say, I'm not going to shine? Did the heavens ever say, I'm not going to send down rain? Look at the earth. Did the earth ever say, nah, seeds? I don't do seeds anymore. I don't do trees anymore. The heaven always sends down rain, and the sun always shines. The sun never went on strike. The sun never took it off. The sun doesn't take sick days. It doesn't take absence. 
doesn't take a leave of absence. So says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, just like the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth, they work like clockwork, and they never go on strike, and they're never lazy, so to you man, you can't take it easy, you can't take off, you can't say, well today I'm not going to serve the Almighty. Learn from the heaven and the earth. Also, is that a meaningful message? Just like the sun shines every day, we should do our service every day. I mean, the sun doesn't have free choice. The moon, they're not Balei Bechira. They don't have Bechira Chavshis. They don't have free choice. What's Rebun Shalom telling Klal Yisrael? We should be like heaven and earth. Heaven and earth are programmed. They're constant. They can't choose to do good. They can't choose to do bad. They do what they're programmed to do. Man has the capacity to, to choose to do what it wants. What kind of meaningful message is it? Be like the heaven and the earth. And we find many examples in Chazal, where Chazal tell us, you know, go learn from the animal kingdom. The Gemara in Erevin says in Avkuf, I'm Rabbi Yochanan. If the Torah wasn't given, we would learn modesty from a cat. We would learn about not taking other people's property from an ant. An ant puts in a lot of work to gather produce, but it will not touch anything another ant collected for itself. We would have learned um, modesty from a dove. We would have learned tarcheretz from a chicken. Really? Why would we learn anything from any of these animals? This is the way God programmed them. That's their, that's their nature. That's how they have no ability to act in any other way. The cat has no ability to take care of its functions in a brazen way. Why would we learn anything from any animal? So I'd like to share with you really a mind-boggling idea, a very empowering idea, a life-changing idea. There's one of the most difficult psukim in the Chumash, the creation of man, where the Rebbe Shalom says, Nasa Adam, let us make man. And of course, Rashi points out this is a very difficult uh, pasta. What do you mean, let us make man? Who is the us? It almost sounds like there's more than one creator. Rashi even says Hashem is giving uh, a place for those who want to uh, deny the, the unity of God to say maybe there are, there's more than one power up there. But the Zayar HaKadosh offers an astounding explanation on the words Nasa Adam. Says the Zayar HaKadosh that Hashem first created heaven and earth and then Hashem created the sky and then Hashem gathers all the water into the oceans and then the plants sprout and the trees sprout and then the fish are created and then the birds and then the animals whereupon God turns to all of creation He turns to heaven He turns to earth He turns to the fish He turns to the birds he turns to the elephants, to the tigers, to the lions. So we're here in Squid Acre, a kennel. And you know, the Gemara says, Avi, the Gemara says in Sachem, don't live in a city that doesn't have dogs, because, you know, the dogs keep away the Ganovim. So the Mechtaf Sefer, the grandson of Sam Sefer, once asked, what's the Indian that we steal the Afikoim in the night of the Seder? What's the basis for that? So at first, Sam Sefer didn't say what the basis for Cipher is, but after the Seder, some Cipher said, you know, the Gemara says, you now just live in a city that doesn't have dogs because there are a lot of Ganovim. That means the Naivitius Mitzrayim says, the dogs weren't barking. 
that means there are a lot of Genevas, the Navi Tzitzim. So to commemorate, as Absolver says, all the Genevas, the Navi Tzitzim, we steal the Afikoimen the night of the Seder. But there's also Rabbi Yonis and Ibish that says, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Kachatzois Halayla. Why doesn't he say Bachatzois? Because he doesn't want the Mitzrayim to say that you're Badoi, you didn't get it head on. The question is, why could Moshe say exactly Chatzois? Because the Gemara says, Mishmar Shniya, Klavim Tzayakim. At Chatzois, the dogs, this way, so this way Moshe's Zman would have been confirmed by the dogs. Because Rabbi Yonis son, since night of the Mitzrayim, the dogs didn't work, so therefore, uh, Moshe would have no confirmation in the night of the Okay, we're going to talk more about the clubbing. We'll talk more about it. You know, uh, the Torah says, We're here at the uh, Squid Acre Kennel. And uh, this is a, a run of dogs. What's the Indian that the night of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, the dogs weren't barking? Rav Kutner explains very deeply that the Gemara tells us there are three creatures that are very bold, audacious, and one of them is the Kelef. What's the Azus of the dog? Simply we would say the Azus is they bark, they scream, they cry. Rav Kutner says the Azus of the dog is that they have the audacity to think that they're on par with man, that they're man's best friend. The audacity of the Kelev is the Kelev has the chutzpah to try to rub shoulders with man as if they're on par with man. The night of Yusuf Mitzrayim, it was so clear, the superiority, the elevation, the elevated status of man, that the dog would never have the chutzpah, the audacity, to try to make a claim that they're a friend of man. No, man's superiority was clear the night of UCS Mitzrayim. Okay, good afternoon everyone. This is my uh, first opportunity to join you on uh, this bus. They call it bus two, but you know this is bus number one. Yeah, you guys are much more uh, engaged there already. Okay. First of all, you know, Zvarim Gedolim Einim B'mikra, great things are never coincidental. So the question is, why did we visit the dogs on August 1st? So you know, it's already the dog days of August. So, okay. Now, uh, I have to follow all of the Maisa uh, Shalai Hoyas that we just heard about the um, the moose, uh, what was it called? So let's talk about dog, dog, Saya. Uh, now, why are we going to talk about that? You know, one of the main personalities in Parak Shira is uh, the Klavim. Klavim Aymrim. Anybody know, what do the dogs say in Parak Shira? You see, everything in creation sings to God. Every tree, every animal has their song. song. So what do the dogs say? Come, let us bow down. We will bless. Hashem, I say before God, our Creator. That's what the dogs say. Why are they Zoycha to sing the Shira? So says the Medrash that this was a very big question. The student of Rabbi Hanina ben Doisa fasted eight five days to be Zoycha to understand why the dogs say the Shira. Until it was revealed to him that as a reward for that when the Jews left Egypt, the dogs did not bark. Therefore, they are rewarded that they sing this song to Hashem. But not only that, but they have the distinct privilege 
that we take their tsaya and we use the tsaya of dogs to tan the hides to produce tefillin. You may not know that. You may not want to know that, but that's the reality. <laughs> we take the tsaya of klavim and we use it to tan the hides of uh, tefillin. In fact, some of the mafarshim on Perak Shira tell us there's a Gemara in Shabbos, Kufnun Hayamaveiz. The Gemara says, you know, dogs have a very limited diet. There's not a lot that they could eat. So because of that, Hashem makes it that the digestive system of the dog is it takes the dog three days for its food to be digested. It takes, it's a three-day process. So the Mepharshim Perak Shira say that since the soya of dogs are used to tan tefillin, and we don't want the soya to be too rotted. All the rotting takes place internally in the dog, so by the time it comes out, it's already in a condition that it can be used for the to tan the hides of the tefillin. I thought you might want to know about that. By the way, it's interesting that uh, one of the reasons why we have a custom the night of Pesach, we're going the afikoiman. We steal the afikoiman. Which means it's a practice. The father puts away the matzah, and the little kids they go, they they steal the matzah, mm-hmm. and they then we barter. The kid gives it back to the father, and condition the father buys the kid a present. Okay? Mm-hmm. Why do we steal the afikoim in the night of the seder? So this question was posed to Chassam Soifer. His grandson Michtaf Soifer asked Chassam Soifer, "Why do we steal the afikoim in the night of the seder?" So Chassam Soifer didn't know the reason. By the end of the Seder, Chassam Sarver said, since the night of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, the dogs didn't bark. And the Gemara says, you shouldn't live in a city that doesn't have dogs. Why? Because there are a lot of Genevas in the city. So it must be the night of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, there are a lot of Genevas. So to commemorate all the robbery that took place the night of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim, Chassam Sarver says, we steal the Afikaiman. Be it as the Pasuk, Kili b'nei Yisrael avadim. Kili b'nei Yisrael. The Kliyaka wrote a sefer called Ir Gibayram. And in the Ir Gibayram, Kliyaka writes, the word Kili b'nei Yisrael is Rashi Tevois, Kelev. Kelev. Why? Because just like the dog is an ani, it doesn't have a lot of food to eat, Yoya ani Yusuli Yisrael. Poverty is a good thing for... For a Jew, it's good for their character not to have uh, to be so indulgent. In fact, the Dabr Zani Oimer Beibrit She Loi Raul Kalaylam Lishmaya Dabr Zachshav. But Lama Haakum Kairim Lihudim Klavim. Okay? Haakum Kairim Lihudim Klavim. Lama She Kili B'nei Yisrael is Rashi Tebo is Kelev. Vigam Banim Atem Lashem Lekechem. Banim begamatria klavim. So ha 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 akum enum yodim lama anum anachnu klavim. Vahemesu she klavim ugamatria banim. Okay. You like that? Okay. I'll, I'll end off with one more interesting thing. You know, the question is why is it a chidosh that the night of Yitzhak Mitzrayim the dogs weren't barking, right? It says, Lechol b'nei Yisrael. What's the chidosh that they weren't barking? Number one, normally when dogs see a carcass, a novella, they bark. The night of Yitzhak time, the Bechayrim were uh, dropping. Bechayrim dropping, right? So even though there were Bechayrim dropping the night of uh, Mitzrayim, the dogs weren't barking. 
Plus, when a dog sees someone walking at night, he barks. Chai, so we're leaving at night. The dog didn't bark. Plus, the Gemara says in Baba Kama, when the dogs bark, it's a simon that the Malcham Abbas is in town. That night, the Malcham Abbas was in town, but still the dogs weren't barking. So it's a big chidosh that the dogs weren't barking the night of Yitzhi's time. But I'm going to end off with one idea. It's very interesting. Rav Hudner explains on a deeper level What's the Indian that the dogs didn't bark the night of Yitzchitz Mitzrayim? The Gemara tells us in Be'ach of Hayamadez, there are three Azim, Shlosha Azimim. Who are they? The Yisrael B'Umais, Kelev B'Chayos, Tarnagol B'Oifais. What's the Azus of a dog? What would you say the Azus of a dog is? We would say the Azus of a dog is, it's very brazen. Here, you, you're innocently walking down the street and he just comes and he barks and he shouts and he he attacks. That's the brazenness of the dog. Rav Hunter says, no, it's much deeper than that. The brazenness of the dog is that there's only one animal that has the audacity to make the claim that they're man's best friend. A cow would never come up to you, start rubbing shoulders with you, start, you know, making believe he's on par with you, he's your friend. The cow knows. He's a cow. You're a man. You know, you're not going to find a goat. No, even even a mythical moose, even in the books that talk about a concept of a moose, they'll never portray that a moose comes and rubs shoulders with man. But a dog makes the claim, he's loyal, he's man's best friend, you could count on him. That's audacious. That's chutzpah then. That a dog is similar to man. That's the greatest audacity in the world. The night of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, it was so clear the superiority of Adam, the superiority of Israel. The dog didn't have the audacity to rub shoulders and say, yeah, I'm on par with man. It was finally clear for the first time in history the superiority of man over animal. And that's Lechomene Yisrael, Layechratz Kalev Lashaynai. Okay, more to come. Start again, okay. This is not your first tuba of in your lifetime, but this is the most important tuba of you ever had. Because, uh, first of all, you know, great things are never coincidental. Why is there firewood by our minion on tuba of? You think uh, just coincidence? So the Gemara goes through many, many different perushim and what the simcha of tuba of is. But ultimately, the Gemara says, they stopped chopping wood for the Mizbeach. They stopped chopping wood. Why they stopped chopping the wood? So Gemara says that once Tuba of comes, the nighttime gets longer because the daylight hours are shorter and the sun wanes. So the sun is not so powerful. So normally you, you chop wood in the summer, the sun dries out the wood. But once the nighttime gets longer, the sun is weaker and then the, the wood could get moisture in it and worms could come. So you can no longer chop wood for the Mizbeach. So the night is longer, says the Gemara. There's more time to learn. The purpose of the nighttime is for Liminatar. In other words, what's the Simcha of Tubav? That the nights are longer and there's more time to, to learn. Now, who could ever appreciate the value of a nighttime? The rest of the, all the other Tubavs in your lifetime, you took the night for granted. So you, Hashem sent you to Alaska where the concept of night has not yet come. There's no night over here. You have to wake up 1 a.m. to say Krishna Shalarvis. In order to understand the importance of the night, think about it. Wherever Klal Yisrael is, the main minion or binion of Klal Yisrael is always in a makam where there's Laila. Why? Whether it's uh, Eretz Yisrael or New York. 
New York is a good place for Jews to live. You can't be in Eretz Yisrael. Why? Because you have nighttime in New York. So you come home after a day's work and you could learn. But Alaska is a very beautiful place to visit. You can't live here. How could you have, have a kihila in Alaska? There's no nighttime. No nighttime, there's no time to learn. So Yvon Shalom sent you to Alaska to appreciate the night and then appreciate the great simcha of Tuba Av. Now, Tubav, of course, is the beginning already of the period of the Yom Naram. What better way to prepare for Yom Naram than extra limit Torah? So let me be the first to wish everyone Aksiv Achsima as it's well known, the Munkacha brings Tubav is Gematria, Ksiva Achsima Taiva. Okay. Hey, good morning, everyone. We have a unique opportunity. We're from the 1% of people who have such a clear view of the Denali Mountain. And I want to thank our naturalist, Holly, for giving me a moment here with you. And Skipper Jake, thank you very much for your service. The Shulchan Aruch writes, Reish Ches, If you see impressive mountains, you make a bracha. Oisa Masa So do you make a bracha on this? Well, let's see. Rabbi Sion Abba Shaul says in, the, in Eretz Yisrael, if you see the Charmon, that's an impressive mountain. You make Oisa Masa The place can say, you make this bracha on the Himalayas, on the Rockies, and on the Swiss Alps. My understanding is Denali is taller than the Rocky Mountains, so definitely you would make Oisimasavrashis on the Denali Mountain. Now there are two mountains that are a Shaila and Halacha. The Grand Canyon. Because according to scientists, the Grand Canyon was not around when the world was created. It took thousands and thousands of years to be carved out. But according to our belief, the whole world was created Ex nihilo, so the Grand Canyon was created instantaneously. One would make halachalamaisa, oisamasavrishis on the Grand Canyon. There is one mountain in the world you don't make oisamasavrishis, the mountains of Rome. Because according to the Gemara, Rome was created overnight. Right? They say Rome wasn't created overnight. That's how you know it was created overnight. Gabriel stuck a reed into the uh, suf and a Landmass developed around it, so you do not make Oysimasavrashis on Rome. The question I had was do you make Oysimasavrashis on the mountains from an aerial view from the airplane? Reb Chaim Kinevsky says no, you gotta wait until you're here because when you're from the, on the airplane, you can't appreciate the altitude of the mountain. So here, Hashem is giving you only 1% of the people. Why us? Because we actually know the halacha to make the bracha. So it's not nege anybody else. There's no Indian just to see it. The Indian is to make a bracha. So we should be zoicha to make the bracha, the kavana, and appreciate Marabu Masacha Hashem. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everyone had a wonderful time at Takeda. So, you know, there's a big discussion. What is the state bird of Alaska? Well, officially the state bird is the willow targamon. However, we've come to learn the state bird of Alaska is the mosquito. Um, and there's a question, why does Alaska have so many mosquitoes? Well, firstly, it has mild temperatures, a lot of precipitation, marshland, lakes, and here's the real reason. Because of the permafrost, the water can never drain. So everything is basically marsh. So, in light of being in the land of the mosquito, let's talk about a very interesting halacha. Are you allowed to kill mosquitoes on Yom Tif that are bothering you? 
you're out in the sukkah and there's a mosquito, a nasty mosquito. He wants your blood. He's going for the jugular. Are you allowed to kill a mosquito on Yom Tif? Now on Shabbos, obviously, you can't kill the mosquito. What malacha is it? The tilas neshama is shechita. But what about on Yom Tif? Should we say, mitoich shehutra shechita l'tzairach, hutra nami shaloy l'tzairach? Mishavrua writes in Sinatavkov Yerches, that the same way we say mitoich shehutra hoitzah l'tzairach hutra nami shaloy l'tzairach, Mitoich applies to cooking, to baking, and to, to shechita as well. So is one allowed to kill a mosquito on Yom Tif? Says Rav Ruderman, it is permitted to kill a mosquito on Yom Tif. And that is how Rav Shmuel Kamenetsky Paskins, that it is permitted to kill a mosquito on Yom Tif. But what's interesting is, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky said, not so fast. Rav Yaakov writes, it's printed in the Yemesi Yaakov and Shulchan Aruch, in the even though there's a sort to say mitoich, and you should be allowed to kill a bee, a uh, gnat, a mosquito, Rav Yaakov says, Lamaisa tsorachian. Rav Shalmazalman says, no. Rav Shalmazalman says you cannot kill a mosquito on Yamtim. First of all, he says, the whole mitoich would be deba- debatable. Because whenever you're using mitoich, it's just like something is permitted for a need of food, something would be permitted for any need. But says Rav Shalmazalman, there's no positive need to kill the mosquito. It's davar shemafriya, something that's bothering you. Removing a nuisance is not considered necessarily a tsayrach. And it could be, says Rav Shalmazalman, that Chazal never permitted it because you'd only be allowed to kill a mosquito that's really bothering you. And where that guideline would be, where the threshold would be, could you kill a mosquito that's three feet away from you? It's not bothering you yet. No, that you can't kill. So, it would be very difficult to have a threshold of which mosquitoes would meet the threshold of annoyance that you'd be allowed to kill them. So, I just want to point out, just to conclude, what about killing mosquitoes in general, on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday, Rav Moshe writes in Igor Smoshin Eben Ezra that even though halachically any human need, one is allowed to uh, violate Tsar Balechayim. In other words, any time there's a human need, one could use an animal for any purpose. Nevertheless, Rav Moshe says there's another issue over here. And that issue is we find by Ir Hanidachas that the Bezdin, who has to take the lives of those who served Avodazar in the Irani Dachas, the Torah says, Benasata Lacha Rachamim Berichamcha. Where the Torah says, even though you're taking the life of the evildoer, we're going to engender mercy within you. It says, why do we need to engender mercy within the court? The court is following the, the prescribed procedure. It says, from here we see that whenever someone takes a life, even when necessary, there's a danger of engendering the midah achzarias, and therefore the Torah has to say, "You need to do this, and we'll we'll safeguard your character trait of rachmanas." Rav Moshe says this is not needed by shechita. By shechita, there's a mitzvah to shecht. So the mitzvah to shecht, you don't need to safeguard. We don't have to worry. Maybe the shoichet will become an achzar. But says Rav Moshe. Whenever possible, one should avoid killing an insect 
the Kumba say straight out. Ramosha says whenever possible, never to kill any Balchai. Better to leave a trap, better to leave some kind of bee trap, mosquito trap, spray. But to kill any living thing with your own hands, Ramosha says even though halachically it's permitted, Midarach Hamusr, it's better to avoid. So and when you're in the land of the mosquito, it's very important to know Hilchais mosquitoes. Yeah. Okay, back at it. Not, not moose, not moose. Let's talk about uh, hunting. Let's talk about hunting in halacha. Is it an issue of tsar balichayim? We're going to talk about tsar balichayim. The, there's a concept that, according to Jewish law, you can't cause distress to an animal. The Gemara tells us tsar balichayim is the iraisa. By the way, an amazing Ramban. The Ramban says, what's the source that you can cause distress to an animal? Ramban says the, the, myth, the source is the mitzvah of shechita. Why is shechita a mitzvah? Why do you make a bracha on shechita? What mitzvah are you mekayim by slaughtering an animal? The answer is you're mekayim the mitzvah of relieving the animal of stress that you would cause it by taking its life in any other way. Shechita is a painless way for the animal to uh, die. By the way, there's an amazing thing that in all kosher animals by severing the two simanim, you immediately co- uh, cut off the oxygen flow to the head, so the animal experiences no pain in the shkita process. In non-kosher animals, the animal still has oxygen going to the brain from other sources, so shechting a non-kosher animal will actually cause the animal a lot of distress. That's why we only eat kosher animals. The Ramban says the source of Tzar Baal Echaim is the mitzvah of Shechita. So is hunting a violation of causing distress to an animal? Absolutely not. The Noi de Behuda says in a famous tshuva that Tzar Baal Echaim is only a problem if you keep the animal alive. But if you take the animal's life, you're not causing the animal distress. You know, people always make a mistake. Don't kill it, it's Tzar Baal Echaim. So that is a very compelling way to demonstrate amaratzos, meaning Jewish illiteracy. There is no issue of Tzar Chaim and taking life of the animal. The issue is what Rav Moshe says, that it's considered cruelty. So it's an issue of a person's own character as opposed to Tzar Chaim Do'iraisa. Now, Ramot tells us in Eben in Simen Hay, anything that is needed for a medicinal reasons for a fua or any other human need there is no tsar balechayim so if somebody needed a feather to write a sefer Torah or to write anything one could pluck a feather from a bird from a goose there's no issue of tsar balechayim however the Ramos says we don't pluck the feather just straight off because that would be achzarias so the question is what is the makar what's the source that for human need there's no issue of Tzar Balechayim. Comes the Das Kedoshim. You know what the Das Kedoshim is? Das Kedoshim is uh, the Buchach. And he says the Raya, that for human need, there's no issue of Tzar Balechayim, is plowing. So he says, how can you plow with an ox? But it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of work. It's painful. It's uh, in the blistering heat. And the Torah allows you to plow it. It speaks about plowing. There are many different psukim that discuss plowing. That shows Tzar Balei Chaim is permitted for the sake of 
human needs. Comes the Chilkas Yaakov, and the Kinskogoyen, and he says, that's not a Raya. He says, animals love to pull, like we saw yesterday at the uh, kennel. Animals enjoy pulling. They're trained to pull. So what's the Das Kedoshim's Raya that Sarbalichayim is permitted for human need for the fact that you'll add a plow? Animals are trained. They're groomed. They enjoy plow, uh, pulling. So there's interesting, the Sri Deish has a tshuva that he defends the Raya of the Das Kedoshim. He says, yeah, animals like to plow. But the Torah doesn't put any limit on up to what point you can plow with an animal. What if you've already plowed with the animal for nine hours and the animal's having a very hard time and he's in great distress? Is there any uh, prohibition or limitation that you have to give the animal an hour off? No. You could plow with an animal without any limit. That demonstrates that for any human need, that supersedes Sar Chayim. So that's an important yesoid when it comes to Tzar Chaim. On the other hand, Rav Moshe, Nebuchadnezzar, Chelet Dalit, has a certain limitation of what is considered human need. So there's a type of calf that is fattened in order to produce a certain uh, white quality in the meat. What is it called? I think it's called white veal. What do you say it's called? So they box in the animal and they stuff the animal with all kinds of foods that the animal has no interest in and the animal doesn't enjoy just not to make the animal healthier merely to make the animal appear plumper and the, and the meat should be whiter. And Ramosha says it is usur even though uh, the person stands to gain from it because for the, with the sole intention is a arbitrary uh, benefit where people are convinced that this meat is more d- delicious, it's not more delicious. Says Rav Moshe, uh, uh, most of the animals that are fat in this way are trefois, and even if the animal is not a trefois in the lung, it's a trefois in the intestine, and a very small percentage of them are healthy. So for this type of human need, which is an arbitrary human need, it's merely tricking people into a delicacy that is not really based in reality. Rav Moshe says this would not constitute human need that would supersede Tsar Balechayim. So, which means in principle there's a concept of not causing distress to an animal. The Noi Yehuda says this does not apply when you take the animal's life. Although there is an issue of the Achzorios that it may engender in the, uh, in the one who commits it. But nevertheless, there is a certain guideline that the human need has to be a legitimate, based, reasonable human need. But under those circumstances, uh, animals were created for the service of man. And actually, Al-Pikabola, we know we have a concept that animals would like us to eat them. In fact, you know, many, uh, many people don't understand animal language. But actually, when a cow says moo, what the cow is saying is, Please put me in, in your cholent. Please eat me. Because we know how Pikabala, there are four categories of matter. There's doimim, samech, chayim, adaber. And the highest elevation is when an animal is consumed, he's elevated to the status of medaber. So yesterday the animal was just sitting there, he couldn't speak. And um, now that you've consumed him, the animal is elevated to the status of medaber. 
וזה הטעם שאני חושב שהגמר האמרס, עמי הארץ, אסורים לאכול בשר. למה בזמן הזה יש כל כך אנשים שחושבים שאסור לאכול בשר? זה מפני שאסור לעם הארץ לאכול בשר. מפני שכשהם אוכלים את הבשר, אין עמל עם הבשר. אדרבה, הם אוהבים את הבשר. The cow is on a higher matriga than they were, so Takaveh should not be eating the meat. But for Shomrei Torah Mitzvahs, by eating basar, it brings a great aliyah to the basar. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. We're headed to the Wildlife Conservatory. So I would like to continue the theme we've been speaking about regarding Tsar Balei Chaim, and more specifically, animal rights. And I just want to uh, put into perspective, perhaps from a Torah perspective, what the view of animal rights is and the grave danger of overemphasizing animal rights. The Sefer HaIkrim, written by Rabbi Yosef Albo, has really a magnificent presentation of the two outlooks on life of Cain and Hevel, ultimately showing how they were both in error and how that the world did not come to correction until Shais comes to the scene. In the opinion of the Sefer HaIkram, one of the great he brings that, what's the reason Cain brought a carbon from Mipri Ha'adama? Cain said to himself, Cain recognized that man's superiority over animal was very minimal. Cain said, the only advantage that man has over animal is the animal will eat whatever presents itself. The animal is not going to necessarily look for better tasting grass or better herbage or better plants. Whatever presents itself to the animal, the animal will partake of. So therefore man's superiority over animal is only that man could, pre- could uh, prepare better herbs, better grass. At this point in time, man was not permitted to eat meat. So therefore, Cain's carbon, his demonstration of what God bestowed upon man, was mipriho adama. In his opinion, man was not allowed to kill animal, even to bring a carbon. Cain felt that man and animal were basically on the same level. On the other hand, Hevel understood the superiority of man over animal. But even in the world of Hevel, Hevel felt man was not permitted to kill animals. Only for the sake of a sacrifice. Other words, otherwise, just to eat an animal, that would be considered murder. Now, Hevel was more on the right track, meaning Hevel understood man's superiority to animals, but he still felt man was not permitted to indiscriminately kill animals, only for the sake of bringing a karmat Hashem. Says the Sefer Ikrit, even though Hevel was more correct, but because his attitude was more likely to lead people astray, namely man was greater than animal, just man was not permitted to slaughter animal, God allowed Hevel to be killed because his attitude was corrupt. However, when Hevel brought a carbon, Hashem turned to the carbon of Hevel and not Cain, because at least Hevel recognized the superiority of man. What happened? Cain makes the following corrupt calculation. Cain sees Hevel brings the carbon. He slaughters an animal. So Cain says, wow, murder must be permitted. If Hevel brings the carbon and he kills an animal and God accepted it, 
Kayin, it never occurred to Kayin, well, maybe man is superior to animal. All Kayin sees is Hevel killing an animal, and God accepts it, so it must be murder is permitted. So Kayin said, if Hevel can kill an animal, I'm allowed to kill Hevel. And that is why Kayin became a murderer. In other words, says the Sefer HaIkrim, animal right and murder are the same. Because once a person takes animal rights to too far, and man and animal become equal, that is where human life loses value. And it's interesting, says the Sefer Ikrim, when God comes to Kayan and he says, why did you kill your brother? All Kayan took from that is not man is superior to animal. He took from that, murder is prohibited. And I can't kill man and I can't kill animal. He never got the, the message that man is superior to animal. Not until Shays is born, says the Sefer Ikrim, does the Pasuk say, Vayoyled bedmusay ketsalmoy. Only by the birth of Shays does it say man is created in the image of God. Because until Shays, people never recognize the superiority of man. What is the superiority of, superiority of man? And that man is created in the image of Hashem. And it doesn't say when Cain was born, he was born in the image of God, because nobody recognized that. It doesn't say by Hevel that he was created in the image of Hashem. It wasn't recognized, not until the birth of Shays. I want to share with you, I once said over the Sefer HaIkrim, uh, many years ago, someone in our shul, I remember his name, Josh Schechter, he pointed out, look at the amazing Midah Knege Midah, because ultimately what happened to Cain? Seven generations later, his great-great-great-grandson, Lemech, is going hunting. And his son, and Lemech was blind, so his son said, shoot! And Lemech shoots! And Lemech mistook Kayin for an animal. You see what happens? You see the Midah Kinege Midah? Because Kayin did not recognize the superiority of man over animal, his punishment was quid pro quo, mida connected mida, he was mistaken for an animal, and ultimately he was killed like an animal. And the lesson says the Sefer Ikrim is that while Tsar Balechaim is the Eraisa, it is a fundamental yesoid that man is superior to animal because man was created in the image of the Creator himself. So that's the limud of the episode of Cain and Hevel. So before you go to a wildlife conservatory and you see the millions of dollars invested in it, recognize where your tzedakah money ought to go and uh, important as important as it is to keep animals safe, there are much more important things to worry about in this world. Okay, we're here in the Alaska Wildlife Conservatory with our good friend uh, Mr. Bear, Brown Bear. And it reminds us of the Gemara Nabadazar, the Gemara Nabadazar says on that at the end of days, God will judge the various nations of the world. First, Rome. Rome is Honestly, most prestigious. And then the second nation to be judged will be Paras, Persia. And the Gemara says, how do we know Persia is second? Gemara cites the Pasuk in Daniel. That's why I'm speaking about the bear, because I have a special connection to bears. The Gemara cites a Pasuk then, the dream, Va'aru Chaya Achrina, there's a second animal, and that was a bear. A bear is ranked number two. So therefore, after Rome, uh, Paras, Persia, is judged second. So when you see this bear, you can remember Toysus. Because Toysus asks, 
really? A bear is the second most prestigious animal? Well, we know the lion is certainly more prestigious. And what nation is compared to the lion? Bavel, Nebuchadnezzar is compared to the lion. So really, God should be judging Babylon before he judges Persia, Paras. Why does the bear come before the lion? Says Tyson, even though the lion is the king, the king of the jungle, the bear is greater than the lion. It's stronger and it's more devious. So that's an interesting Tysis. So as scary as a lion is, according to Tysis, Mr. Bear is even more frightening and more scary. So that's what we learned from the bear. Now, Persia is compared to the the bear. Igmar says about Achashvero, she's like a bear. He's hairy like a bear. He sleeps like a bear. Throughout Shas, the ministering angel of Paras is Doiviel, Doiviel, Doiv Kel. That's the ministering angel of Paras. What's interesting is the Goyin brings the tradition that Paras today is Russia. The Vilna Goyin teaches Paras today is Russia. It's interesting then that Russia is also compared to the bear, the bear of Russia. As the Gemara teaches us, the bear represents Paras and according to the Goyin, Paras today is Mother Russia. Okay, passing on these roads, we see the amazing topography and geology of this region. So I want to speak out a very important principle about the Jewish understanding of geology in general. You know, if you study the science of the area, the area of the Arctic Ocean, be it Alaska, be it Canada, be it northern Siberia, clearly the climate that exists today is different than the climate that once was. Because if you look in the permafrost, they found horses, rhinoceroses, oxen, mammoths, tigers, bison, beavers, and lions. And these are creatures that cannot exist in these climates today. So the question is, how did they get there? A question that the Malbim deals with is, many fossils are found in the deepest layers of the soil that indicate that the age of the universe is uh, older than our tradition of 5,783 years. So the Malbim speaks at length, and by the way, the Svarna also talks about, there were traumatic changes at the time of the Malbim, at the time of the Great Flood. We are Vayimach es kol hayukum. The Malbim explains, first, the human bones decompose. The human bones are the most fragile of all living creatures. But then even the bones of massive creatures, because of the great earthquakes that opened up the Tehoim Rabbah, the fossils and the bones of animals went extremely deep down into the soil then. So what archaeologists may say indicate that the age of the universe is uh, many hundreds of times older than what we maintain. Our tradition is clear. There were traumatic changes at the time of the Mabel, and that accounts for the animals that are found in the depths of the, the fossil record. But the Malbum and the Sferno teach us something really incredible. You know, today in Alaska, it's a pretty warm day. Uh, my understanding is it's from the warmest it gets in uh, this area of the world. But the, for, the most, uh, for the most part, it's an extremely cold climate. There's uh, permafrost, that's why you have so many mosquitoes, you have the tundra area. But clearly from the fossil record, the climate here in Alaska used to be much more mild. So when exactly what was that? The Pasuk says after the Mabel, the Rebbe promises, 
Zara, the Katsir, the Kar, the Chaim, the Kayetz, the Chayyab, the Yambalayla, the There will always be day and night, there will always be summer, winter, spring, and fall. That implies that before the Mabel, there weren't seasons. There wasn't summer and winter, spring and autumn. So, thank you. So, the, the Mabel explains that right now, in the current state of the world, the earth is tilted on an angle of 23 and a half degrees. That tilt of the earth makes it that the sun does not shine on all areas of the earth equally. In some areas, there are extreme seasons. There's extreme cold, extreme extreme heat. By the equator, it's more of an even temperature throughout the year. Says the Malbim, and the Sfarno says the same, before the flood, before the Malbim, the earth was on a mashve hashave, was on a perfect line. There was no tilt. So if there's no tilt, the sun hits every area exactly the same. All areas of the world enjoyed San Diego weather throughout the entire year. But because of the Mabel, so Hashem... Now, if you live in San Diego, if you have pleasant weather, then you're healthier, you live longer, the Mabel says. There's less illness. Says the Malbum, before the Malbum, people lived unusually long lifetimes because they didn't have to deal with the extreme, the extremities of the seasons, of the winds, of the cold, of the heat, and everything that difficult and challenging weather brings. Now that there is a Malbum, the earth was tilted on a 23 and a half degree tilt. Now you have extreme weather. The lifetime, the lifespan of man is diminished. And now we have four seasons. Beyond that, before the Mabel, you didn't really have day and night. There was a lot of sunshine, and people didn't have to uh, work as much. And the Mabel says that after the Mabel, Hashem uh, gave man more work to do, and more time to work, in order to uh, distract man from their desires and their taivas. But the bottom line is, says the Mabel, that once the earth was tilted on 23 half and a half degree tilt, so now there extreme, there's extreme weather. But Alaska, you should have seen what Alaska was like before the Mabel. It was like San Diego. So you had lions and tigers, yes, and bears, and all the animals that are found in the permafrost all used to live here in the 49th state, which by the way, at the time, before the Great Flood, it was not the 49th state. But at that time, you had all the animals that are found in the fossil record today. This is uh, our true uh, Messiah, based on the Pasuk. Says the Hilagam album, The Eidos Hashem Ne'emana Machimas Pesi, Lahashiv Dabar, Lechachme Hajiologia. The true testimony of the Torah that makes the foolish wise, this is our response to the uh, to the discipline of geology, who dig into the depths of the earth and find all of these animals in the fossil record. So, uh, it would have been nice to come to Alaska before the Mabel, but it is pretty nice to come after the Mabel, because, uh, you know, it gives more variety to the area. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, good morning everyone. Bahaya Ekev Tishma'un. Bahaya. Akev. Akev implies that there's reward. But reward, how could there be reward? There's no reward in this world, especially 
the words right before Vahaya Ekev Tishman, the last words of Zubas Khanan, are Hayoyim Asoysam, the Gemara in Erevin Darshan, Hayoyim Asoysam, Vomachar Lekabel Scharam. So it's one thing if the Torah says you get reward, but how can it say in the next sentence, after it says there's no reward in this world, by the way, there's reward in this world. Says the Chidah, there's no world reward in this world. You can't get reward in this world. Skar Vahayam Alecha. But Vahaya, in Vahaya Lalashan Simcha. The simcha that you have doing mitzvahs, for that you do indeed get a reward for this, in this world. So today you do the mitzvahs. The reward, reward is tomorrow. But v'chaya, the simcha for a mitzvah, that ekev tishma, that you get reward. Bahayama. Go. Okay, we're here in the Kenya forest. We're overlooking the American bald eagle. Now, it's very interesting in halacha, and in terms of identifying the eagle in Halacha, we know the Torah talks about the Nesher. The first animal, the first bird mentioned of the 20 birds is the Nesher. What is the identity of the Nesher? So most interpreted as the eagle, but it's not so simple. According to uh, the Me'am Loyes, according to the Chizkuni, according to the Balat, uh, Iter, the Nesher is the eagle. But according to many Rishonim, it is not the eagle. It is the Gryffindor vulture, the Gryffin vulture. So that's it. Ezra and Rosadia Gaith, who they translated with the Arabic word Nasar, which is the griffin vulture. David C. Hoffman says Nesher is a general word which encompasses both species, but according to many Rishonim, it is not the eagle because it's certainly referring to the highest flying birds, like the Rabbanishal says, Va'esa Eschem al Kanfein Nesharim, that Hashem will raise us up to the pinnacle, and the vulture actually flies higher than the eagle. But nevertheless, the eagle is a very high flying bird and it's Okay, we can't give up this opportunity. You know, uh, I'm a Sachet Shava Inikal, so I want to I share with you Sachet Shava on glaciers. You might not be familiar what Sachet Shava has to say about glaciers. The Shem Shmuel brings down in many Mekoymites about there are two Gehenims. There's Gehenim Shel Eish, and there's Gehenim Shel Shelek. So it's hard to know the power of Shelek, but here at this place, even though, you know, we'll speak out of Suffolk and Halacha, we're not sure whether we should make an Isam Asimoratius, you know, we make mountains and rivers and seas on a glacier. We have not found any of the places to discuss. So Shem Shron discusses what's Gehenim Shel Shelech for. Gehenim Shelech. If somebody does a chet, there's an Indian of Tahara and Gehenim Shelech. What's Gehenim Shel Shelech? So he says that when a person does a mitzvah, you have to do a mitzvah with a hislavos, with a fiery bread. So those who don't reach that madriga, they need a tahara in Gehenim Shosheleg. Gehenim Shosheleg is for those who don't do mitzvahs with a, with a bread. When you daven, you have to daven with a certain fire. When you learn, you have to learn in a fiery way. So that's the role of the Gehenim Shosheleg. Who could imagine what a Gehenim Shosheleg looks like? You can imagine, you know, maybe there's a shower over there, you open it up, and that's, uh, that could be an entranceway. But, uh, Marabu Masecha Hashem is really one of the, the wonders of the world that, that we're zaychat to see. Okay, we're, we're still here at the glacier, so I want to share with you, it's a lifelong question. I don't have a good answer. We have Choshev Rabbanim over here, so maybe somebody will share an answer. The Maral tells us, you know the word bracha. What does bracha mean? Bracha means riboy. So if you take the letters of bracha, Be'ez is two, Chaf is twenty. Reish is 200. Every letter of the word Baruch is multiples, meaning uh, proliferation. 
So I always wondered, Sheleg, Shin Lamed Gimel is three, right? You have Gimel is three, Lamed is 30, Shin is 300. What's the dimension of three in, uh, in Sheleg? I just thought I would share that question. Maybe somebody has a, a nice approach. We're here in Kenai Fjords National Park, and we have the remarkable opportunity to see really an astounding sight, something extremely rare. It's not uncommon to see uh, one, two, or three even humpback whales, but here, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us the opportunity to see a mishpacha of, it looks like, 11 humpback whales. We asked the uh, steward, what is the likelihood of seeing so many whales? Is it top uh, 50%, top 20%, top 10%? He said only 1%. It's a very unlikely uh, possibility to see so many humpback whales. So now the question is, does one make the bracha of Mishana Habrios? There's no question the humpback whale is a unusual species, a remarkable species. An adult humpback whale ranges from 46 to 56 feet, could weigh about 40 tons, and it has really a spectacular flute, which is its back tail, and it blows bubbles from the uh, the blowhole, from which it stuns its prey and then traps them. So does one make the bracha? Mishane habrius. It's certainly an unusual creature. The Gemara tells us in brachas and chesam abeis, tanarabanan haraya peel kaif a kipuf. Someone who sees an elephant, a monkey, or a kipuf, which is unclear what that is, you make the bracha. Baruch mishane habrius. And this is the halacha and codified in Shachnar Simon Reish Chafhe. Interestingly, the opinion of the Alkut Yosef in Chela Gimel, on Brachos, page Tafresh Ches, that Rebbe Vadya held that this bracha is only said on an elephant or a monkey. However, Rav Shlomazam Norbach, if you see, if you look in the Halicha Shloimai, on Tefillah, Perk Chav Gimel, Lamed Hay, also brought in the Sefer Ve'alel La'yibal, Chilak Aleph, he holds that any unusual Chaya one makes the brach of Mishana Habriois. The examples given in the Gemara are Lavdafka. And therefore, if somebody goes to a zoo, the first unusual Chaya of Shamazaman says, you make the bracha. So the question is, would you make a bracha on an unusual fish, on an unusual marine creature? So in the Sefer Va'alei they asked of Shamazaman Bidiyuk this question. Do you make a bracha on Dagim Mishunim Oid? Do you make Mishana Habriois? Says of Shomazalman, no, you don't make the bracha. The Gemara's examples, although they are lavdafka, but since they're all examples of chayos, and the Gemara doesn't say dogim meshunim, therefore you would only make the bracha on chayos and not dogim. It's interesting. Reb Nevenzal, it's brought in the Sefer Kum Hasalech Ba'aretz on page Chav Gimel. Reb Nevenzal said he saw some say you don't make a dogim meshunim. He says. He doesn't know the reason why, but the bottom line is, in deference to Shlomo Zalman, one would not make a Mishana Habriois on a humpback whale, but one can only marvel at the plan and design of such an amazing creature. Marabu Masach Hashem. What a spectacular opportunity here in the Kinei Fjords, seeing so many humpback whales up close, 11 of them. And you see 
literally hundreds of birds converging on the whales as they're feeding. And it reminds me of the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah and Daflam and Aleph and Aleph. The Gemara says, Bechamishi on Thursday, Shabara Oifais, Vedogim, Leshabeach, Leshmai. Hashem created birds and fish to praise His name. So we see there's a, there's a commonality between the birds and the fish. So why, why are these birds converging over here? Well, you see, the whales are feeding. And the whales have an astounding way with which they feed. From their blowholes, these humpback whales, they blow bubbles. Now, what do these bubbles do? The bubbles stun the prey. So when you see the fluke being raised up, that means the, the whales are going to dive deep down. They may go 20 meters below the water, and they're going to swim up. And as they swim up, they're going to blow these bubbles from their blowholes, and the bubbles will stun the small fish in the area. And then the whales will uh, swim up with their mouths gaping wide. But even more astounding, sometimes the whales will swim upward in a spiral. And while they're swimming upward in a spiral, they're going to be blowing bubbles. And this, these bubbles create a circular net and it traps the fish. So the fish form these clusters and then they rise up with their mouth gaping wide. So as the whales are swimming up, the birds say, why should we go and look for isolated prey? We, we could save our energy. We'll uh, piggyback off of these whales and uh, we'll share the lunch. So they sort of share. The birds don't take anything away from the whales because they're basically eating their shirayim. So this is a, an example of what the Gemara says, a commonality between the birds and the fish. But also, I can't help but think there's another commonality because... Although we hear the birds uh, quite clearly, they're chirping, they're singing, but the sonar here on the boat is also picking up the song of the whale. But we'll stop for a moment to, to focus on listening to the song of the whale. Both of these creatures, they were created on the fifth day. They were created, the Gemara says, L'shabeach l'shmai. So we hear the birds being M'shabeach HaKadosh Baruch Hu, together with the whales being M'shabeach HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and all of the Bria sings out together HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Marabu Masacha Hashem. Good afternoon, everyone. That was really an amazing zuchus uh, that we had, an amazing opportunity. So I interviewed one of the stewards and I asked, you know, we saw we saw remarkable things. Was this top 50% of trips on the water? Top 20%? Top 10%? Top 1%? And he said, by far, top 1% of any of the trips he's ever made. So Baruch Hashem, we had a remarkable opportunity. I want to uh, speak about fish. And uh, we're going to play a little game. We have here... The Yom Naram season is coming up. We have here the book, The Mystery and the Majesty. So whoever gets the right answer to this question will win a free book, The Mystery and the Majesty. Why do you think I like fish? I'm going to give you a little hint. 
first of all, uh, my initials. Okay, for this one, <laughs> for this one, uh, I'm not giving out the book, but that's just a hint. Why do you think I like f fish? Something to do with my initials. What do you say? DG. Dollar Gimel, there you go, Daniel Glatstein. So, but what does it have to do, what about my middle name? Anybody know my middle name? Jay, how do you know Jay? Well, you saw me sign a check or something? <laughs> What's that? Well, you so many yentas. Why are people studying other people's profile on their WhatsApp? But, you know, before I talk about the fish, sorry to tell you, mind your own WhatsApp profile, you know? Yona? No. No, but good try. Well, close. Okay, I'll say close. Almost. No, Almost. My, my father, that's my father's name, and we're Ashkenazi, so that's not my name. Okay? Yaakov. Yaakov. Oh. Oh. Is that your father? Daniel Yaakov Blatstein. So, I'm like a fisherman, a Dayog. But the question is, this is the tough one, what's my connection to Dagim? And now, um, it has something to do with me and my father. Sachachov, I don't know what that means. <laughs> No, not mother. Born in Adar. Born in Adar. No, close. Daniel, Yaakov, Gladstein, Ben, Yosef, Menachem, Dogim, I'm Dogim. Okay, that's, uh, okay. So nobody won the book. Good, because I wasn't planning on giving it to anyone anyway. No, but we'll, we'll have other opportunities to uh, win the book. Uh, we know the Magen Avram tells us it's in Reish Mambez. He brings the Sefer Tikkunei Shabbos. Sheyoichal v'chol suda migimel suda is dogim. One should eat fish all three meals on Shabbos. Friday night, Shabbos day, Shalashudas. You should have some fish. And by the way, the Avram, same comment on the Magen Avram, the fishermen used to try to jack up the prices because they knew Jews uh, had to buy fish. So the Magen Avram brings from the Tzemach Tzedek. Not to be confused with the Tzemach Tzedek that you heard of, this is an earliest Tzemach Tzedek. His name was Ravanachem Mendel Krachemel, one of the early Achreinim. He says if the fishermen hike up the prices, then, you know, eat meatballs or something. No, you don't have to eat fish on Shabbos. So what's the Indian of eating fish on Shabbos? I want to show with you two thoughts. First of all, fish are a unique creature. Fish are the only creature, they have a rush. They have a goof. They're only missing one thing. They don't have a neck. They don't have a tzavar. They have no neck. They're a head and a goof. Mechubar yachta. Mechubar yachta. What's the significance of that? That a fish does not have a neck. There is an amazing Chassam Soifer. The Chassam Soifer writes about this in many places. Chassam Soifer tells us that who is our Rosh? Vayelach magem l'vem v'ashem b'roishem Hashkash Baruch who's the roish? Who's the guf? Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people are the body. What attaches Hakadosh Baruch Hu to Knesset Yisrael? The Beis Hamikdash. That's why the Beis Hamikdash is always referred to as the Tzavar. Tzavareich kimigdal Hashem kimigdal David Tzavareich. The Beis Hamikdash is always referred to as a neck. Why? Says a Chassam Soifer. Says a Shem Yishmuel. Because the base, through the base Hamikdash, all Shefa comes down to the world, and up through the base Hamikdash, it's the Shara Shemayim, all the Tfilos go up. 
So the Beis Hamikdash is the pipeline, the passageway, the attachment, the point of connection between Hakadosh Baruch Hu and Knesset Yisrael. However, says the Chassam Soifer, the Beis Hamikdash was not the original plan and is not the final plan. The original plan was B'chol Makayim Asher Azkir Eshemi the original plan is v'shachanti b'soicham. The original plan was the Rebbeinu will dwell, will dwell in the Shechina on every, on every Jew. And la'asid lavoi. In fact, the Rebbeinu will dwell on us. So ask some soifer. So why will we need a base of mikdash? He says, in fact, we won't need a base of mikdash. We'll only need a base of mikdash to bring karbanos. But the Shechina will rest on every Jew. Says Achsam soifer. What do we refer to as the time of the future where we won't need a Beis HaMikdash as a place to house the Shechina? That is called Dug. Dug represents the Achras Hayamim, when we won't need a Tzavar, when we won't need a point of connection to attach HaKadosh Baruch Hu to Knesset So, By the way, just parenthetically, we saw many fish in the sea. There's one other animal that also has no neck. And that is Yehuda Gladstein. He wins the mystery and the majesty. I have to keep it in the family. No. The pig, the chazer, has no neck. Why does the pig have no neck? Because, says Achsam Sefer, represents Esav. All the other nations of the world, they have a sar, they have a ministering angel, there's a nation, and there's some type of connection between the two. Esav, the Samachmem and Esav are always mechuber yachad. That's why the Chazer has no neck. In any event, the Achrus Hayomim is referred to as the dog. I once saw in one of the Svarim of Rapinchas Friedman, he suggests that the reason why we eat fish on Shabbos is because Shabbos is Yom Shekula Shabbos and Nuchalachayoyalamim represents the Achrus Hayomim, Arachaman, Puyan Chilenu, Yom Shekula Itoyev. It represents the Lavai, and therefore we eat fish on Shabbos. But there's another reason. We eat fish on, fish on Shabbos. A lot of people ask me if I'm going to talk about the Leviathan. Yes! We're going to talk about the Leviathan. Raise your hand if you take a shower before Shabbos. No, I know it's a personal question. Just, you know, my personal advice is it's always a good idea, but definitely at least once a week, right? Jew, what do you say? At least yeah, once a week. Most of the time. Most of the time. Okay. Now, According to Jewish thought, the shower is supposed to be very hot. Why is the shower supposed to be very hot? Because our Shabbos is a reenactment. Every week on Shabbos, we remind ourselves of the purpose of creation, Olam Haba. We remind ourselves of the Yom Shekulay Time. Therefore, all of the repasts of Shabbos remind us of Olam Haba. So, for example, in La'asad Lavoi, we're, uh, we're going to have Sudas Leviathan. Says a Kadmain, the name of the Kadmain is the Torah Chaim, Masechta Erevin. He says the reason why we have fish on Shabbos is to reenact Achilas Leviathan La'asad Lavoi. So whether you have gefilte fish, whether you have salmon, whether you have sushi, obviously L'Chadchila is supposed to be gefilte fish, but even if you veer off the uh, traditional Jewish foods, fish, why? It's a zecher to the future suda of, of, of the Leviathan. 
says the Taras Chaim. That's why we eat meat on Shabbos. Because we're going to partake of the Shar Habar. That's why we have Pashtida on Shabbos. The Medrash says we're going to have the Man. However, in order to get to Elam Haba, the Gemara says sometimes you need some purification in the Har Dinar. In the burning, hot, fiery waters of Dinar. Therefore, before we enjoy Shabbos, we take a burning hot shower. And that represents and reflects the uh, passage through Nahar Dinar before we're Zoycha to Eilam Haba. You see? You see what, what Yidin could do? We could take Gehenim and we make a hot schmack shower out of it. So that's the uh, Indian of all the Menhagim of Shabbos are in order to react, uh, reenact the Indian of the Yom Shakul Shabbos So we have two reasons to eat fish on Shabbos. One, it reminds us of love to love when we won't eat the base Hamikdash as a Tzavar. And number two, it reminds us of Achilas Leviasan. And I don't know if the uh, humpback whale is the Leviasan, but uh, it's as close as you're going to see before Mashiach comes. Okay, I'm, I'm, we're going to take a moment with his pointing, the Parsha Parsha. Okay, back at it with the fish. I want to say over what uh, we have a very chashvarav on the trip, and uh, I want to say what a pleasure it's been to have Rav Agoyin Rav Roy Keach on the trip together with me. Uh, he shared so many beautiful Devei Torah, and it really it's been a big aliyah for me to be together with him and his chashvar Rebetzin, and uh, I learned a lot from them. First of all, the yichus that they have over here on, on the in this mishpacha, you have the bells. Let's see if I get it right. You have bells. Rav Shem Klingbald. Klingberg. Klingberg. M2. No, Rav Shem Klingberg. The, which I'm a very big admirer of a sefer. Um, the Rebbe's is from the Majid Sarebbe. Rav Shamsen Fal Hirsch. Yeah, how am I doing so far? Yeah, not bad. And that's that's only mitzah shvacha v'fanav. So the Rav shared with me a uh, beautiful idea from the Menei Yisachar, another reason why we eat fish on Shabbos. And that's because uh, the Menei Yisachar tells us there are three items that were in Nisbarech v'masabarechus. We know Dogim, Hashem was Mavarech the Dogim, B'yayim HaChamishi. Hashem was Mavarech Adam, B'yayim HaShishi. Hashem was Mavarech Shabbos, B'yayim HaShvi. So for Adam to have Dogim on Shabbos, so it's a triple bracha, that's another beautiful reason we have fish on Shabbos. I also want to mention the Ben Yehoyado, Masech the Sanhedrin, Dav Kufches. Ben Yehoyado says that the reason we have fish on Shabbos is that we know that Gehenim is not shoyled on Shabbos. So you take your hot shower, you come out of the Gehenim, and you're good to go. Gehenim is not shoyled on Shabbos. The same way, the Eish of the Mabel was not shoyled on the Dogim. You know, in the Mabal, the Dogum were saved. So to indicate that the fires of Gehenim are not uh, operable on Shabbos, so we have Dogum on Shabbos. Okay, now here's your trivia question. To win a free copy of The Mystery and the Majesty, Matsoi Shabbos, I already give you a big hint. We say, Yoshev B'Seser Elyon. And the final Pasuk, we say twice, Oirech Yamim Asbiehu Why do we repeat 
the, the last Pasuk another time. Why do we repeat Oyrech Yamim Asbiyehu V'yareyu V'yishuasi? Anybody know? I never knew this. My whole life I didn't know this until I saw there's a new Sefer, there's Miroys, or Reb Chaim Knievsky. Reb Chaim Knievsky writes that a Zokin told him based on the Megala Mukais, it was just the yard side of the Megala Mukais. By the way, my Rebbetzin is directed on the Megala Mukais. The Megala Mukais tells us that there, there are every tefillah you say takes an hour and a half, which means four and a half hours a day, the Gehenim is not operable. So how many hours a week does Gehenim not operate? Well, you have 24 hours on Shabbos, and then you have four and a half hours a day. So throughout the course of the week, Gehenim only operates 117 hours. There are 112 words in Yoshe B'Seisalian. We say again, Oyrech Yamim Asbiyah V'Ariyah B'Shuasi to get to 117 words. Can I get the 117 hours that Gehenim operates during the week? Because when Shabbos is over, then it's, you know, back to that place. So to protect from that, we, we, we say Yoshe B'Seisal and we, we say the final Pasuk with five words additional time. That's what Rukhaim Knievsky says. So I want to talk more about the fish. You know, there's an interesting thing. There's an interesting there's an interesting uh, idea that until after the Mabal, other Mauritian was not allowed to eat meat. Noyach was not allowed to eat meat. Mankind was not allowed to eat meat. Adam was not permitted to eat meat. Adam was only permitted to eat the Yerak Hasadah. The Pasuk says, Lochem So Adam was allowed to eat salad and leaves and greens. It was a tough existence there, you know, in Gan Eden. But Adam was not permitted to eat meat, not until after the Mabal. So Ramban is troubled, okay, what happened after the Mabal that all of a sudden Adam was allowed to eat meat? Says Ramban, since the animals were only saved in the merit of, of Noyach, since the animals were only spared. If not for Noyach, the animals would have all perished in the Mabal. The, the animals that were saved in the Teva were only Bishchus Noyach. So since they were saved in his Chus, it's only right he should be allowed to eat them. By the way, the Radak adds, not only were they saved in his merit, but he was also Matriach. He also went through the trouble of taking care of the animals. So as a reward for caring for the animals, now man is allowed to eat meat. So the kasha is, Rabbi say, Noyach only was matriach for the animals, but not the fish. The fish survived the mammal. So what? Why is Noyach allowed to eat the fish? The only reason he's allowed to eat the meat is because he saved them. But he didn't save the fish. So if he didn't save the fish, then why is he allowed to eat the fish? So says the Avnei Nezer, this is what they say in Sachachah, Taka Noyach was not allowed to eat the fish. It was prohibited for him to eat the fish. So when did it become Mutter for him to eat the fish? At Kabbalah Satayra. When was the Torah given? On Shabbos. Says Avnei Nezer, the reason we eat fish on Shabbos is because fish only became Mutter to eat on Shabbos 
Okay. But this is a major question because the Gemara Sanhedrin seems to say explicitly that, okay, maybe you'll give a different answer. Maybe you'll say that Adam Harishain himself was allowed to eat fish from the beginning of creation. So maybe the fish didn't become mutter by the teva, maybe the fish were always mutter. But the Gemara Sanhedrin says very clearly that Adam Harishain was not allowed to eat the fish. So now the question is, so when did the fish become mutter? <coughs> Comes the Meshachachma, and Meshachachma says that the fish became permitted after the Mabal. Aye, the Ramban says the only reason why Mayach was allowed to eat the fish is because he cared for the fish. Maybe it's because he, he cared for the animals, but Mayach uh, was not caring for the fish. The fish survived. So the Meshachachma says, well, we know there's a well-known principle Hashem doesn't want to make jealousy. If he's eating, if Adam Arishan is eating moose, if Noyach is eating moose, and he's eating caribou, and he's eating steak, then the fish are going to be like, you know, boasting, ha, you can't eat me. So in order to keep a certain level of equality, Hashem allowed Adam Arishan to eat fish as well. Others say, there's a commentary on the Ramban, the late Sion, he says that it wasn't pushed for the fish to survive. The only reason the fish survived, how did the fish survive? The whole Atlantic Ocean was like a, a burning fire. So Leif Sion says, well, the fish escaped. They went to a, a comfortable climate. Yeah, how were the fish able to escape? They're only able to escape this chus nayach. So even the fish's survival was in the merit of nayach. So that's another approach that uh, why the fish became uh, permitted. Others suggest that in fact Adam Arishain was allowed to eat fish from the very beginning. This seems to be uh, the opinion of the Ibn Ezra that uh, Adam Arishain was allowed was indeed uh, allowed to eat fish from the start. So next time you have fish, you can review like uh, one of the earlier shurim that we spoke about. When, uh, when you see a Zayas, you remember the Shirm of Kizesim, when you see a Kisaira, when you see a Te'ina, when you see a, a date, you remember that the world is a world of Torah. Every finger represents another Halacha, the Zeres, the Kmitzah, the Amaetz, Fagaydal. And so too, when it comes to Dagam, Dagam is a whole Oilam, an Oilam of Torah. Okay, hi everyone. You're probably wondering, what divrei can we say about Alaskan sports? Now, this is very important. We just learned about various Alaskan sports. For example, uh, knuckle bouncing. The knuckle hop. Knuckle hopping. We also learned about the ear pulling. And the purpose and the objective of the ear pulling is, uh, in the case of frostbite, the ears are from the first limbs to be frostbitten. So to see what kind of a man you are, they want to man you up, toughen you up, to see whether you can handle a little coldness by the ear. You know, we have something similar. The Gemara Ksuba says on the Hayyam Adam person should be careful not to allow their ears to hear idle chatter. The first limb to be singed in the purgatory are the ears. The ears are the first limb to be
be sin, similar to the fact that the ears are the first to be for, frostbitten. Therefore, one should always be careful what their ear listens to. Sometimes a person is tired, and they turn on nonsense. They're not even listening to it. They just want to be lulled into sleep. So, you say, what am I supposed to listen to? That's why Rav Nassim is going to be posting all of the clips of uh, this year. And you could run it in a, a loop. You could be listening to it now until the next Avir Tours. So just listen to one share after another because you want to exercise your ears so that when you get upstairs, you want it's like you have um, ear warmers on your ears. When you get upstairs, you're protected. So this is an important exercise that we do in this world. We make sure that not only are all of our limbs whole and we do mitzvahs with them, we're even careful what we listen to. And this is uh, one of the lessons of Alaskan sports that in our observance, we're careful even what we listen to. Thank you, Drew, for that uh, lesson. Okay. Okay, everyone, this is our last stop. We're here at Ship Creek. And this is really... No, this, this, the, we're here at really an amazing exhibit of something demonstrated in the Bria of what applies to man. We know we started off the first uh, talk we gave about the Ramchal, that everything in this world reflects a certain aspect of HaKadosh Baruch But there's also another idea, because man is a microcosm of the universe. It means everything in the Bria reflects an element of man. So just picture for yourself, these salmon are born up the river. They get a little bit older, they venture out into the ocean, they go out into the big world, they make it in the big world, in the salt water, and then at two years old or three years old, something clicks in their brain that they have to give over to the next generation, and they have to return. They have to return to their origin, they have to return to where they were born. And they're going to swim upstream, jumping over waterfalls, over bears, over eagles, upstream in almost super salmon way and they return to their place of origin what element of man do you think the salmon represents this is the Indian of tshuva there is no more vivid illustration in this world than the salmon run of the instinct of man that at the end of life before you return back to your creator you have to make sure to do tshuva you know, Rabbi Yeruchim says, what's tshuva? Tshuva is not just returning to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Tshuva is returning to yourself, returning to who you could be, being the best that you could be. And this is really vividly illustrated by the salmon run, where they go hundreds of miles and somewhere programmed in their brain, they return to their exact moment of origin. So here we are, we're in Chaydash Av, El Ulba, and when you come to the Yom Naram, Remember the last stop here in Alaska of the tshuva of the great salmon.
One of the most fascinating aspects of traveling to Alaska is the subject of the international dateline, and therefore the fundamental question, when is Shabbos in Alaska? Is there a suffix regarding when Shabbos is in Alaska? To me, this was one of the most amazing questions that needed to be addressed uh, based on our traveling to Alaska. So the first thing that is in order to understand this question is to have a clear understanding of the suffix that does exist regarding Japan and Hawaii. And once we have a clear understanding why Japan and Hawaii presents a very basic suffix regarding when Shabbos is, we can understand whether Alaska is subject to the very same suffix. Now, in order to appreciate this, we have to have clear the well-known machloikis about the international dayline between the Chazoinish and Rabbi Chiel Michal Tikachinsky. The Chazoinish is of the opinion that the international dayline is at 125.2 degrees latitude. This line goes cuts through mainland Russia, the Philippines, part of Indonesia, and Australia. According to the Chazoinish, this line is exactly 90 degrees east of Yerushalayim. So according to Chazonish, International Dateline is 90 degrees east of Yerushalayim. Rabbi Chiyo Michal Tukachinsky, on the other hand, holds that the International Dateline is exactly opposite Yerushalayim. So in other words, if you had a globe and Yerushalayim is on one side of the globe, exactly opposite Yerushalayim would be the International Dateline at According to Rabbi Chil Michal Tukachinsky, 144.8 west longitude. This dateline cuts through mainland Alaska, and it really splices Alaska into two, where Juneau, the capital, would be on the east, and Anchorage would be on the west. Now, we were headed to Anchorage, and the question is, is Anchorage, when is Shabbos in Anchorage? So let's explain Hawaii and Japan for a moment. Hawaii and Japan are many, many hours behind. Technically, they're many hours behind New York. So when it's Shabbos in New York, it's technically Friday in Japan in Hawaii. The only thing is, there is the civil dateline where Hawaii is still Friday and Japan would then be the same Shabbos as it is for us. So let's speak about Hawaii. When you travel to Hawaii, from New York to Hawaii, you are crossing the dateline of Rabbi Chiel Michal Tikachinsky. So even though Hawaii would be Friday, according to Rabbi Chiel Michal, since you've crossed the dateline, it then is advanced to Shabbos. So what is Shabbos in New York is Shabbos in Hawaii, according to Rabbi Chiel Michal Tikachinsky. But according to the Chazoinish, you have not crossed the International Day Line. You have not crossed the Civil Day Line. So according to the Chazoinish, Friday is Shabbos in Hawaii. Let's talk about Japan. If you're traveling to Japan, so Japan is many hours earlier, and you encounter a very similar situation where you're traveling many hours earlier. Japan is many hours earlier than it is in New York. According to Rabbi Chiel Michal Tikachinsky, 
Japan, even though technically Friday should be Shabbos, the civil day line makes Shabbos Shabbos. His international day line that you cross makes it Shabbos. But according to the Chazoynish, it is not Shabbos yet. According to the Chazoynish, even though it's a Friday, the civil day line doesn't make, uh, doesn't change the observance. The line of Rebichil Michal doesn't change the observance. According to the Chazoynish, Friday would be Shabbos. So according to Rebichil Michal Tigachinsky, Hawaii and Japan would be observed on uh, what the civil calendar says is Saturday. And according to the Chazoynish, no, it is Friday. So Hawaii and Japan presents a real Suffolk Dairaisa. And therefore the Paiskim say that in these two locations, one would be required to observe two days of Shabbos, at least on halachos that are midairaisa. Because again, Hawaii and Japan fall smack in between the international dateline of Rabbi Shalom Michal Tegachinsky and the Chazoynish. And because it's a Suffolk Dairaisa, in Hawaii and Japan, two days need to be observed. The same thing would apply to the Aleutian Islands trailing off the tail end of Alaska because you meet the international dateline of Rabbi Shalom Michal Tegachinsky, you do not meet the international dateline of the Chazoynish. So the Aleutian Islands are the same Suffolk. And there, there is no question, if you travel there, you're going to have to observe two days of Shabbos. Friday, because according to Rabbi Chal Michal Tegachinsky, you've, you've crossed the date line. And Shabbos, because according to the Chazonish, you have not crossed the date line. The question, though, is mainland Alaska. So you say, what's the question? Shouldn't mainland Alaska be the exact same suffix? Whatever is west of the international day line of Rabbi Siel Michal Tikachinsky, Rabbi Siel Michal would say Friday is Shabbos, and the Chazonish would say no, Saturday is Shabbos. So it would seem at first glance that if somebody is going to be in Alaska for Shabbos in, in Anchorage, they should keep two days of Shabbos on Dinim Da'iraisa, Friday and Shabbos. So I called Rabbi Shmuel first in Chicago. And I want to thank my good friend in Baltimore, Rabbi David Haber, who uh, shared with me this map of the date lines that he created, as well as he explained to me many of the details of these halachas. Rushmul first explained that mainland Alaska is not a question, and only one day needs to be to be observed. And this is according to all opinions, and this is l'charchila, and there's no reason to avoid going to mainland Alaska for Shabbos. And he explained as follows. If you look at the map, much of mainland Australia, and especially the place where there are Jewish communities, let's say Melbourne or Sydney, they are on the east side of the international dateline, according to the Chazoynish. So mainland Australia should also be a suffix. We're according to Rabbi Chil Michal, the Friday of which the civic dateline uh, says is Saturday should be Shabbos. And according to the Chazoynish, Saturday, which the 
uh, the uh, civil dateline should say we would say Sunday should be Shabbos. So mainland Australia should be a Shaila according to the Chazonish. But Chazonish says it's not a Shaila at all. And the reason is the Chazonish adds the following Chiddush. Chazonish says there's a concept of Gerera, of dragging along, that since the West of Australia, which is on the west of the dateline, is considered, uh, it's not Shabbos until the next day. Therefore, likewise, in other words, the same way the west side of the dateline is considered already the next day, in other words, uh, what the the civil dateline says is Shabbos, is Shabbos, so the East Coast is schlepped along and is subject to the exact same halachic dateline. In other words, the Chazoner says the following principle, that it's incongruous that you could have on one side of the street, they observe Shabbos on Saturday, and one side of the street, they observe Shabbos on Friday. Would that make any sense? But that's what would come out, because those locations on the west side of the dateline, they're going to observe Shabbos on Friday. And what's on the east side of the dateline, they're going to observe Shabbos on Shabbos. So because that is incongruous, Chazoyer says the entire landmass is schlepped to the west. And therefore, mainland Australia is not a suffix at all, because the entire continent is considered to have already crossed the dateline. According, accordingly, Australia is simple that Saturday is Shabbos. According to Abichil Mechel, you've crossed his dateline, and according to Chazoyer You've crossed his dayline through the principle of Gerera. And in Australia, nobody has a suffix. There have been great communities there for a very long time with many great Paiskim, and never was there ever a suffix as to when Shabbos is in Australia because of the uh, the concept of Gerera. Therefore, says Rav first, Alaska, we would apply the same rationale of Gerera, that even though technically you've crossed the dayline of Yichil Michal, after Juno, but nevertheless, mainland Alaska gets schlepped to the east and is subject to the same D-line as the entire mainland of the United States of America. And therefore, even though technically you've crossed the international D-line of Yisrael Michal Tikachinsky, because of the concept of Greero, we say the entire Alaska gets pulled to the east side. And therefore, if Shmuel first says, there is no problem of going to Alaska, going to Anchorage, and keeping one day of Shabbos, I asked him, you know, I don't have to go there for Shabbos. I could I could fly back. Is it L'Chadchila? And he said, yes, it's L'Chadchila. The entire Alaska is a subject to the dateline of the rest of mainland USA. However, I did hear that other Rabbanim uh, maintained differently, and this was said over the name of Rabdavid Feinstein, that mainland Alaska would be a suffix just like the Aleutian Islands. Now, why would that be? Don't we say Grera regarding Australia definitively? Why wouldn't we say Grera regarding Alaska? And what Rabdavid Feinstein is reputed to have said is that we say Grera to mainland Australia because there we're dealing with the dateline of the Chazoinish. And the Chazoinish held of Grera definitively. And since the Chazoinish held of of Greira, definitively, uh, mainland Australia is considered subject to the dateline of the west coast of Australia. 
But now when we're dealing with Alaska, we're dealing with the international name of Rishil Michal Tukachinsky. Rabbi Chil Michal was not definitive about Greira. Rabbi Chil Michal personally was Mesupik about Greira. And since he was Mesupik about Greira, there indeed is a suffix. So in other words, when you go to Anchorage, Alaska, it's really a Svek Because according to the Chazoinish, you have not crossed the dateline. And according to Rabbi Chil Michal Tukachinsky, even if you have crossed the dateline, maybe you say Greira, but there was enough of a question here that Rabdavid Feinstein is reputed to have advised people to who need to be in Alaska for Shabbos to go to Juneau, which is on the east coast of the dateline. Now, Shanila uh, Atsi, in my humble opinion, it would seem that there shouldn't be a question over here because the issue of Greira is a separate issue than where the dateline is. And regarding the issue of Greira, we definitively hold Yesh Greira. There is Greira. But nevertheless, in deference to, to what is said over in the name of Rabdo Feinstein, I decided to avoid any questions, even though um, there were people who did stay in Anchorage for Shabbos. And I think that uh, that's a legitimate position that there really is no doubt. But in deference to Rabdo Feinstein, I wanted to avoid any possible question regarding Shabbos, and uh, we flew back to New York for Shabbos. It's a good thing we didn't stay in Juneau, because the Shabbos we were going to go to Juneau, there were historic floods in Juneau in a Suicide Basin. So this is uh, gives you a little bit of a picture of the issue that mainland Alaska deals with. On the one hand, you cross the Dalan Rabbi Shil Michal Tegachinsky and at the Chazaynesh. On the other hand, if you say Grira, then the dateline would be of Alaska would still be subject to mainland USA. So again, what we, our personal uh, hanhaga was we avoided the issue entirely, but there seems like there is genuine basis to say that mainland Alaska, in fact, is not a question, but the Aleutian Islands of Alaska certainly are a question, as are Hawaii and Japan. Wishing everyone bracha v'hatzlacha. Here's the million-dollar question regarding the international dateline. For a fuller understanding of the subject, I refer you to the earlier class that we gave on the subject. But here's the executive summary. There's a well-known machlekes between Chazoinish and Rabbi Phil Michal Tikachinsky. Chazoinish holds the international dateline is 90 degrees east of Yushalayim. It runs through Russia, Philippines, Indonesia, and Australia. While the opinion of Rabbi Phil Michal Tikachinsky is the international dayline is 144.8 degrees longitude west. This line is exactly parallel to Yerushalayim. So on a globe, Yerushalayim is on one side, exactly parallel is international dayline according to Rabbi Chil Michal In our previous presentation, we introduced the concept of Greira regarding the international dayline, regarding mainland Australia. Even though only the west coast of Australia is past the dayline according to the Chazoinish. Nevertheless, all of Australia observes the same Shabbos. And the reason for that is we say Greira. We say that once part of the continent is considered the next day, the entire continent is considered that day. So in other words, even though only the west part has crossed the dateline. Nevertheless, we say 
that the entire continent has crossed the International Day Line and all the continent observes Shabbos on Shabbos. But let's think about the grayer over here. The east is being pulled to the west. There seems to be an inconsistency in the concept of Greira when it comes to Alaska. Because Alaska has the International Day Line running right through it. And there, many Pais can say that the part of Alaska, which is past the Day Line, we say Greira, and it's pulled to mainland United States of America. So since mainland has not crossed the day line, the main body of Alaska has not either. But why is it that when it comes to Alaska, in the world of Rebichil Mechotekachinsky, Greira pulls the west to the east, while when it comes to Australia, the east is pulled to the west. Now maybe you'll say, Alaska, you have to pull the west to the east because it's only a small piece and the rest of the continent is much larger. So logically, the West should be pulled to the East. Well then, why by, by Australia do we pull the majority of the content, continent to the West? Some suggest that it's because since Australia is already so close to Yerushalayim, then we're going to pull that area toward Yerushalayim. But Alaska is further, so we're going to pull it to mainland USA. This is certainly not a clear answer. And this is one of the great mysteries of the halachic dateline, why it would be that mainland Alaska is pulled to the east regarding the dateline, and the content of Australia, the majority of it is pulled to the west. So this is a question for your uh, consumption, and I hope this, will, this question will put into sharp focus some of the, lo- the location of the dateline and some of its main principles. Wishing everyone safe travels. everyone. Just some closing thoughts. Uh, first, we want to give a tremendous yasha kayach to uh, Avi Rokeach for, for coming to uh, new terrain. This is not like any other trip that we've done. Avir uh, Tours does not have any set kitchens here. So we're coming to new territory and Avi pulled off a really trip of a lifetime and I hope you appreciate Really a very unique experience. Avi put in tremendous avoida in uh, giving it his best so that everyone should have a, a very memorable and enjoyable experience. Yashar Kayach Avi. We want to thank Drew uh, for his uh, excellent uh, touring leadership and his expertise, knowledge, and uh, interesting uh, presentations throughout. Uh, we wish you a lot of g- good luck and success in all your future endeavors. Thank you. Uh, thank you to our, our great bus driver, Lou. Woo! Hat off to Lou. Lou is there for us. He's a manning the roads, uh, navigating through bears, eagles, mosquitoes, mm-hmm. mythi- mythical moose, and uh, making sure that we're always safe. So we wish you continued safe travels. God bless you, and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. Just uh, one closing thought. This week's special, we have the Mitzvah Berchus Hamazayim, benching. 
And uh, one interesting thing we observe about benching is that aside for thanking Hashem for the food, we're required to thank Hashem for brismila, for for Taira, for Eretz Yisrael, and for uh, many of the benefits that are reserved for the Jewish people. And you may ask, here it is, you had a salami sandwich, you ate uh, bread, why are you thanking Hashem for brismila? Why are you thanking Hashem for Torah? Why are you thanking Hashem for all these benefits? And I think the reason is, if you look carefully in the Pesukim, the Pesuk says, Baruch Tiyam Mikal Ha'amim. You are the most blessed of all the nations. And then it says, Therefore, V'yachalta, V'sabato, V'yachalta, You'll eat, you'll be satiated, and you'll bench Hashem. Meaning you have to bless Hashem, not only for the food, but you have to bless Hashem because He blessed you more than any other nation, and you have to acknowledge that. And therefore, Baruch HaMazayin, is an expression of gratitude not only for the food, but in all the ways that we are blessed more than any other nation, namely Brasmila, Taira, and Eretz Yisrael. And this is really clearly enunciated in uh, in uh, the Zmira, Yisrael Zemachubad. We say, Leisech Sar Kalbay, V'yachalta, V'savata, Uveirachta, Sashem Lekecha, Why? Ki Veirachicha, Mikal Ha'amim. So it's clear that the reason for Berchas HaMazoyin is because Baruch Tiyah Mikal Ha'amim. And this is something we saw very much in our trip. Thousands of people come to Alaska. Thousands of people come to Denali. We're from the 1% that saw the mountain clearer than anybody else. Thousands of people come to the uh, fords in Kenai. And we're from the 1% that uh, saw 11 humpback whales and saw all those birds converging upon them. So even in our trip to Alaska, we see Baruch Tia Mikal Ha'amim, how the Rebbein Shalom was with us. He gave us special Siyata Deshmaya. And uh, so we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not only for being able to be here, but for the unique opportunity that he provided for us. And if anybody wants to really re-experience this trip, because as you're traveling, it's hard to really digest everything, I want to give a big Yashu Kayach to Rav Nassim Wadler. who for 96 hours straight was holding his hand in a position. He now is able to enter the Alaskan um, Olympics because, uh, you know, when you're hunting for moose, I don't know if you know this, if you're hunting, you have to be able to hold your hands in this position for a very long time. So thank you, Rav Nassim, who's going to be posting all the clips. There are many, many more to come. Thank you very much, everybody. Wishing you all bracha v'atzlacha. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.